Hi, everybody. We have another. Hi. hi. How's it going? Not well. Not you can. Hi, you too. But everybody who's hi listening. You. Hi, yeah. <laughs> Our November episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be based entirely on a listener question. We want to get as much feedback as we can. We want people to uh, answer this question. We can build first an, and foremost. First and foremost, we want people to answer this question, and we can build an entire episode around that. Yeah. That way, we don't have to do research. <laughs> the question is: We've gotten a few good answers. Yeah, I love that movie. A few good answers. The question <laughs> you can't handle the question. <laughs> the question is what do you like most about angelinos and what should someone not from here be aware of to make their stay as agreeable as possible give me your ride that's your answer right there there's a teaser (laughs) give me your wallet (laughs) if i put a gun in your face you give me your wallet so if you have an answer which i know you have an answer send us your answer you can email it to us la.meekly at gmail.com on instagram at la underscore meekly twitter at la meekly those are the best ways those are probably the best ways yeah yeah. joanna at breakfast club told me in person the answer i'm like we're gonna Uh, need it in writing yeah this (laughs) is binding (laughs) or call us in on the la meekly hotline 911 (laughs) (laughs) ask to speak to the mayor he'll he'll forward the call we have a red phone red because it's so angry that we keep telling people to call 911 but yeah send it in thank you episode time intro begins now intros are weird if this is your first time listening stick with it yeah bye. Just, just power through it robot bye <laughs>Welcome, everyone, to the sixth annual State of the Podcast address that we all remember happening every year for the past six years, right? We'll start this meeting as we've started all of these meetings for the past six years with a ceremonial handshake that we definitely learned six years ago. Good. Unfortunately, this will be our last of these addresses due to the fact that we have now covered every possible topic in Los Angeles history and the podcast will be over. Please contain yourselves. Hold your cries. We've scoured the archives and there's nothing left. The circle is now complete. When first you met us, we were but the learners. Now... (laughs) Come on, Daniel. Finish the reference. I can't. Come on, you could do it. <laughs> I am the captain now. Okay, I'll, I'll take it from here. We can't believe that we've reached this point, but here we are. And with that, oh, no. we bid you... Wait! Who let this kid in? I can think of a few topics I've always been curious about that you've never really covered. Beat it, kid. We don't take suggestions from people who don't know long division. 234 divided by 4 is 58.5. It's pretty impressive, but that's short division. Security, teach this kid long division. Wait, what about an episode on the first Bat Boy for the Dodgers? Eh, I'm sure we've covered it. Well, you never covered the restaurant that Robert Blake ate in before he murdered his wife in cold blood, or the Wowie Pop Factory, or the Queen Mary, or my dog, Henry Hunting Dog. I've said we've covered everything. We're done. But what about the story of the time two podcasters took their sperms and sewed it together and used it to impregnate a microphone that gave birth to a little boy. That's a disgusting abomination. We'd never cover that. Yeah, you're right. But if that ever did happen, what would you name that boy? That thing wouldn't deserve a name, especially not one as beautiful as, I don't know, Greg Jr. or Daniel Jr. What's your name? I don't have one. Wow. That sounds like a personal journey that you should start in another building by leaving. But I have a listener question. Are either of you two fathers? Kid, if I answer that question the way I want to, you'd age 40 years. And Daniel's a virgin. Greg! You- <laughs> Get out of here, kid, or I'll break your neck! Oh.
God, I'd love to have one of those someday. Not that one, though. That one looks like two men in a microphone. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having a little rug rat. Maybe that kid's age. Interest in LA history. One that knows short division. You know, that microphone's looking pretty good tonight. What do you say we get the old sewing kit back out? I'm your son! What's that kid saying? Something about the sun? You two are my dads! <laughs> yeah, I guess we are a couple of crazy dads. Well... I'm retired now. Whatever you actually said probably isn't important. Time to stick my head back in the sand. Oh, like an ostrich. Oh, we'll do an episode about ostrich farms. That's a new topic. Ally Meekly's back for one more month. One more month. One more month. We're back, baby. I'm your baby! This is episode 69, you know. Is it really? Yeah. Let's kiss each other's bottoms. Bonk. Oh, like porn Bonk. music. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. what you're doing. But from the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> it's reggae and it's porn. <laughs> Welcome to Ellie Meekly, the podcast that will have you saying, didn't you used to have a sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them. This is why we don't have a sponsor, because you say we don't. You know what's a bad omen is when you acknowledge that there's an omen. If we just ignore the omen. <laughs> so what if there's a dead crow in your yard? It could mean anything. What is it? It's September 1st. It is September 1st. Somebody's birthday is coming up. I didn't get him anything. Oh. Is is it Mark Hamill? Yeah, it's Mark Hamill, Is actually. it Will Smith? <laughs> actually, I did get Mark Hamill something. I, I got Will Smith something. I, I got him a, the complete works of Jazzy Jeff. I think he'll... I th- really think he'll like it this year. Get it for him every year. It's the obligatory time of year where we say, wake me up when September ends, but I'd rather not because yeah. it's my birthday. <laughs> it's that time of year where I ask you to stop saying that every year. The annual... You're the one year. that says it every year. I don't say it every year. You say it every year. I said it maybe once, but not every year. Once a year. Oh, oh, that's what <laughs> annual means. Oh, I meant perennial. <laughs> yeah, so it's September. We survived August. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been that hot. It hasn't. Yeah, but there's still... Well, we're, as we're recording this, there's still about another week. All the degrees we didn't get in the rest of august it's going to be 400 degrees they, every single they day they roll over yeah they're month by month they roll over the amazon's on fire so we're going to have less oxygen to breathe during this heat wave so shallow breaths everybody <laughs> shallow breaths from now on ankles itchy you're covered in ants you know that right you have bugs ants. in your hair i walked into a spider web this morning the what's the rest of that i'm walking uh, in this. no that's the same song you're right uh, banana. Um, <laughs> for some reason now i can't think of another a single ever no doubt song i'm just a girl oh yeah i'm just a spider uh, don't web. speak all right let's that has nothing to do with September. anything now <laughs> we're just talking to each other now i don't give a care that there's microphones here did you say give a hair because i walked into a spider web this morning <laughs> please uh, stop this i try again i'm trying to think of another no doubt song and you i don't, can't do you, it again you don't need to you can just stop you know you could just stop you could just stop it now don't speak they're covered with ubladi ublida ublada Nailed it. Okay, so let's get into something we did last month. Yeah, you go first. I'll go first. Whoa. Think about it a little bit. It was something we did together. Okay. It was after a certain field trip we did. It was going to the rehearsal at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do for a long time, but never knew. Even in our Hollywood Bowl episode, you bring up that it's a thing, and then you're like, but I could never do it, and then we finally did it. (laughs) And I'll never do that (laughs) after we did the field trip thing that'll come out probably next week or so. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to see the Hollywood Bowl. We just followed classical music into the woods. We heard this mysterious flute and a guy with 
goat legs, <laughs> and we followed it into the Hollywood Hills. Well, you can't because you can't hear it because it was shielded. It was kind of shielded, and then we're like walking through the vomitorium, as it's called, into the Hollywood Bowl, yeah. and we're like, you know, our usual boisterous selves. Yeah. We're belching. Mm-hmm. We're pounding our have, chest, yelling Tarzan, Tarzan. I have my hand down my pants. <laughs> I was doing the Tim Allen bark <laughs> and dumping trash cans over, looking for more food, just doing our thing. You know, <laughs> I was cocking my guns, <laughs> and the person who worked there, which first of all, that was a giveaway. She's like, you know, like she, she was signaling to us. Oh like, yeah, sh- shush your yeah, stupid and, mouth. And we we saw that there's like maybe 20 people, and it was the Hungarian, some Hungarian orchestra yeah. was practicing classical Super music. Super casual. They were all wearing like khakis <laughs> and polo shirts, yeah. and we're like, who let the summer camp onto the Hollywood The bus Bowl? breakdown? What's going on? <laughs> it was really nice just sitting there for mm-hmm. free, yeah. just listening to world-class musicians practicing, which I couldn't tell the difference, yeah. aside from the screaming of the conductor. <laughs> andante! Andante! <laughs> but it was really nice, yeah, and it was very you beautiful. pretty much have the place to yourself, and mm-hmm. you can just sit there as long as you want. Apparently, you can bring food, yeah. and it's free. And there's also, I mean, I know you're somebody who always freaks out about the behavior of people around you at the Hollywood Bowl, but like sitting in the yeah. area full of 20 people, it was dead silent, and everyone was just on their best behavior, because yeah. if you do one thing wrong, you're not hidden in thousands. The an- no, an- anonymi- anonymity of a thousands. You couldn't even take a picture. You yeah. had to go to the back mm-hmm. of the area to take a picture, because yeah. that's... Don't reveal the song I'm going to cool, play. Everybody, yeah. Yeah. I don't want this to leak on the internet. I thought he was going to play Opus Number 8. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That yeah. was a nice time, and I recommend it, but it's probably too late, because summer's over. Sucker. You stupid idiot. You did it again, didn't you? You wasted your summer. You're like, I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go on a road trip. What'd you do? You went to see Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> you stupid idiot. You, you did. You, you ate. dumb child. <laughs> so my girlfriend. Yeah. What'd you do? Has this. Oh, you got it. You got a girlfriend, girlfriend this month. Uh, <laughs> Wild stuff. Wild stuff. Wow. Ain't no the, care for the summertime blues. <laughs> that doesn't... Um, okay. Ada had a picture of mm, an old... Oh, my God. Of a old Pacific Electric stop in Mount Washington mm. on Mare Mayon Way. There was an old stop there. The Los Angeles and Mount Washington Incline Railway had a stop there. And now it's just like a someone's house. It's like a duplex. <laughs> but they left the structure there and she wanted to see it. So we went. We're hanging around and we're like, well, where did this really go to? And then she found out that it was a little bit like the Mount Low Railway or yeah. the Angels Flight and it went up the hill to Mount Washington. So we're like, well, where did it go? And it used to go to a place called the Mount Washington Hotel. So we're like, well, let's see if that place is still up. So we went on these tight Los Angeles streets that are like meant for one car, but two cars, like the, well, there's already a car parked and uh, you have to like swivel. Yeah. And at some point it turns into a dirt, like a really bumpy <laughs> dirt road. But we get to where the hotel used to be on top of Mount Washington. And now it's the Self-Realization Center on Mount Washington. It is so beautiful. It's a place on top of Mount Washington it overlooks the entire city and you go up there and it, you just sit on the it's open anybody if you don't want to walk in and you sit on the grass and you just you can meditate you could do yoga there's like a little garden there you know what's weird is that I think I recently heard about this really from some, the Ada. same thing oh, that, <laughs> oh that's how I know it it was my girlfriend my summer girlfriend <laughs> my spring fling my late spring early fall <laughs> spring my spring both of these things that we're talking about we got scooped on by the like the next day after we went to the Hollywood oh, for sure. thing yeah, the no. LA Times is like did you know you could do this we but, have a bug or my laptop it's not bug. just the ants that are crawling all over our pants but I've seen pictures of that and it seems Gorgeous. really very relaxing yeah there's people walking around and everyone just understood like people trying to meditate <laughs> so do not talk louder than this or someone will come and break your neck uh, you can go in the back and talk <laughs> we have like a pit a scream like, pit a yeah, scream pit it was beautiful I'm, I want to go back when I learn how to meditate you're like Bruce Wayne getting kicked down from the mountaintop but he's not ready yeah, yeah. I think that's what happens <laughs> I don't know <laughs> he's 
the Hulk, right? I've never seen Batman. Oh my god! I've only seen the Bruce Wayne part of the Batman movies. Whenever Adam West goes downstairs into the basement, I just turn it off and wait for him to come back. It's on mute. I don't really know it's what it does. Too scary. <laughs> too much purple. Growing up in Yemen, those parts were always blocked out on the TV, so I don't know. They don't allow Batman. Is that true? I don't know. I don't Maybe. Know. I mean, Cape Crusader. They don't want that. Let's keep that word Crusade out of Yemen. Any sort of crusade, they don't want that in that part of the world again. I think I have an ant straight up in my ear. Something's trying to compete with the hang headphones. On, hang on, I'm getting word from. <laughs> <laughs> Lift Boulder. Okay, I think I did that. Bring leaves to Queen. <laughs> Both very relaxing mm-hmm. things we did this past month. It's a We're good way to. A couple of relaxed guys. I, I'm never so anxious. No, ever. I'm so relaxed right now. Yeah. I'm just defecating <laughs> and no one even cares. I'm not even squeezing it out. It's just flowing out. <laughs> that was our August. It's time for September now. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, let's explain the concept of this episode. It's sort yeah. of a concept episode. So I wanted to do a, almost like a thing where we went back to talk about something that we had briefly touched on yeah. in a, for, a previous episode. My thing didn't work out. <laughs> so I had to go to just two. I was trying to juggle it. And then we just came up with the idea. How about it's like a junk drawer? Like it's just yeah. maybe random stuff we might have talked about. Not enough. Yeah, to... One of my things. Maybe both of them. Yeah. But one of them we definitely touched on for me. And the other one, if I haven't mentioned him in passing, I've always wanted to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. But there was never an episode where he would fit into. Exactly. That, that's how I found out later that both of these would have fit into another episode. <laughs> but uh, I want to give these two things I covered a little bit more attention. It, it's that's, that's you. Yeah, you nailed it. Right. It's the junk drawer. <laughs> it's a junk the drawer. junk drawer of the, the meekly junk drawer. It's the cutting, welcome to the cutting room floor. <laughs> Sticky, ain't it? Is this a reference to something or are you just being gross? No, it's not that gross. It's just oh, what know, do you do? You're... The floor, f- when is a floor ever clean? Oh. Not in my house. Why do I still think we're talking about a junk drawer? I'm talking about the cutting room floor now. We changed imagery? Yeah, the metaphor's shifting. My mind is racing. It's <laughs> everything. My world building here, Greg. This is all different. I don't know. I don't have the rights to Spider-Man anymore. This is just things we wanted to talk about yeah, that sort had, of didn't uh, fit. They had no home. Let's do it. I'm going to start us off. My first thing I'm going to talk about was a little market in La Crescenta named the Spike Jones Market. Not that Spike Jones. You're Thank looking you. at me. Not the one that's with the Beastie Boys and does skateboarding videos. There's too many Spike Joneses. There's two and that's too many pick another last name like lee or <laughs> if you don't know spike jones was a comedy musician from like the 40s and 50s he had some really wacky records and an insane 50s live tv show that mixed like comedy sketches and musical numbers so if you want some context before like weird al or the bonzo dog doodah band or dr demento mm-hmm. there was long beach's own spike jones and he was incredibly popular so just to give a little because i'm not going to go into him too much because we might have to save it for a weird al episode because i didn't realize that he was born in linwood and now mm-hmm. i know and now we have to do Straight a parody. Linwood. spike jones was born lindley jones what? I can Lindley? see why he took the nickname and he never let it go. He's born in Long Beach, Lindley. It's kind of cool. How? It's the name of a street I know. <laughs> That's cool to me. The familiarity is cool to me. He was born in Long Beach in December of 1911. He was son of a railroad man and a school teacher. Two of the funniest professions out there. I've seen pictures of little... Ripe Lin- for parody. <laughs> I've seen pictures of him as a little kid. First of all, he looks like a caricature come to life. He looks exactly, exactly like Dash from The Incredibles. Oh, yeah. We were watching a video of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a kid, even more so. He looks just like that. Like, giant head on a small body. Yeah, hair too comb perfectly. Yeah, I don't like the way that kid looks. He's too buff, He's a buff for a kid, kid his age. Kid his size. He's a big head. Big head's making. Well, you his think- dad, I guess he gets it from his dad. His dad is a... <laughs> to the point where... <laughs> okay, so like I said, not to spoil a future episode, we're going to be really brief. Spike Jones was an incredibly talented percussionist, and he was like a studio guy. He, you know, he was playing in the background of some popular movies and songs of the 30s and 40s. The biggest name he's attached to is Bing Crosby. He played drums for Bing Crosby? Yeah, he played... It, he was, what was Bing Crosby's real name, Lindley? His real name's Spike. No, <laughs> his real name's <laughs> Bill. Bill, <laughs> not, no, Bill Crosby? <laughs> David Crosby, that's the one I was trying to go for. I'm like, I know that there's a musician, not Bill. And I said Bill. The Crosby you know show. But he, oh, yeah, so he's playing with Bing Crosby, but honestly... 
that music doesn't really excite him because Bing Crosby's music is very straight-laced and sentimental. All the music at the time is very straight-laced and sentimental, and that's not what Spike's into. So he attends a very stuffy classical music concert, and because of an accident from the composer, Spike begins toying with the idea of planning musical mistakes, meaning adding silly sounds and squeaks and thuds to songs, but fitting them in as if they were any other instrument. So he went to a classical concert and the conductors he pointed at the wrong thing and it was like he goes to a concert and he had new leather shoes on and every time he lifted himself up the shoe squeaked (laughs) in the middle of a beautiful song so it just (laughs) yeah and he thought it was hysterical so he started thinking how can i do that but like plan it so if you listen to his music especially on the tv show like it's a band playing like a fast swing song and in the middle it's thuds and squeaks and horns and all this Mm -hmm. chaos this creates a really beautiful and chaotic sound that's really bouncy and it's exciting but most importantly it's funny it's like musical anarchy it's considered satire because of the popular music the way it's a parody or satire is because it's taking normal songs and just adding wackiness to it it's not adding funny lyrics it's just making yeah it's the subverting fun. the form there it is yeah it's like hijacking swing music and crashing it into a cartoon factory like it's <laughs> great it sounds so fun just like cowbells and squeaks and horns and that soon evolves into parody songs of classic jazz standards his band spike jones and the city slickers they officially formed in 1942 and they became incredibly popular after two big hits a silly version of cocktails for two and a jab at hitler called their fearer's face which came out in 1943 before he killed himself <laughs> before he, he disappeared mysteriously <laughs> for two dogs shot him two dogs didn't he kill two dogs with him in the bunker he poisoned his dog to test out the poison he was about to take take (laughs) (laughs) those dogs are still alive so that's a clue right who's running germany now the german shepherd of his so it's 1946 and an already married spike jones attends a concert at the hollywood palladium and catches a talented and beautiful singer named dog a dog hitler Anyway, what? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to a concert at Hollywood Palladium and he catches a beautiful singer named Helen Greco. It's really Greco, but her stage name is Greco. He offers her a spot in his band and what do you know it? Three years later, they were married. Greco, like I said originally, Greco, like Spike, has connections to Bing Crosby. The Greco family hailed from Tacoma, Washington, where her father ran a grocery store chain until the Depression took it. She was eight years old at the time and was trying to help her family by singing, which is such a 1930s way to fix a problem. Also living in Tacoma was Bing Crosby's brother, who heard Helen at a local singing gig. Ring Crosby. Cha-ching Crosby. Bling Ring Crosby. I'm going to dress as Bling Crosby for <laughs> Halloween. It's just going to be Bing Crosby with a lot of jewelry. Kids are going to love it. So Bing Crosby's brother who goes unnamed heard <laughs> helen at a local singing gig and sent her record to bing bing then brought her to la and that's where she met spike she brought the whole family to crescenta valley with her they lived near mary street in rosemont so now it's 1949 depression long over helen's career was doing pretty good and their new son-in-law is a famous person it sounds like a good time to start up that old grocery chain again <laughs> let's get the band back together with spike's help the grecos opened up a market at the southeast corner of la crescenta and foothill boulevard but what do we call it? Now, I'm not quite sure how involved Spike was in this or if he was totally into it, but the market would be called the Spike Jones Market with a huge neon sign that had his instantly recognizable caricature adorning it, or it's James Cagney. It's one of the two. <laughs> so now Spike wouldn't be working in the store, but he helped open the market. And I believe he did so in partnership with Helen's two brothers, Ralph and John, along with an uncle and another nephew. So it's the Spike Jones Market operated by the Grecos who partly owned it. And heck yes, we're going to cash in on the celebrity element of Spike Jones because it's still 1949. 
what? I mean, is it only selling Spike Jones related things? No. Or it's just so it's just a market. It's a market that has Spike Jones's name on. Mm-hmm. It. It's not like the Rocky and Bullwinkle store no. or something like that. No, when, I think Joanna from Rockhaven first brought up that there was a Spike Jones market, and I had the same thought of like, well, yeah. I guess they just sell records, whereas <laughs> music related, no, it's just a store. It's a market <laughs> named after Spike Jones, who was partly owned. So residents of Crescenta Valley remember on opening day, Spike and the City Sickers performed on the sidewalk in front of the market on Foothill Boulevard, which must have been great. According to some residents, the store was pretty small by today's standards. Think like a 1950s drugstore. Like actually the structure itself was previously used for a pharmacy. So it's just like the Fair Oaks pharmacy. Like I imagine it's about that size. But did anyone question like were people going in and like, where are the wacky ties? (laughs) Where do I buy squeaky horns? (laughs) I don't know how people took to it initially. Like I'm confused, but I'm confused in 2019 about something from the 50s. So like, (laughs) well, I mean, there are places that like uh, that drugstore in Studio City that's like boxing ring liquor and it, but like there's nothing What's in a name? A grocery store. The structure held a bunch of independent businesses operating under one roof. So there was Spike Jones Market. There was the butcher. It was Bill's Butcher Shop, La Crescenta Pharmacy, a U.S. Post Office, and a C's Candy Outlet, and also mm-hmm. a barber shop. Now we're talking. Oh, uh, is it still? <laughs> and then we, it's open now. Some locals remember an Italian man named Louis who ran the produce department. Uh, the store was not without its humor. The sign above the okay, produce no, aisle okay. read, All our lettuce is conceded. Big heads. Big head lettuce yeah. is a type of lettuce, or there, is that, that just no, a no, no, 50s no. thing of calling a lettuce? <laughs> Jesus Christ, that you did that. That was you failing to comprehend. <laughs> it's a head of lettuce. They're big heads of lettuce. Okay. I mean, this is asking too much of a, a grocery patron. It's pretty easy. The lettuce. Big it's heads. a big head of lettuce. It's a big head of lettuce. But it, were people like, were they that much bigger than a normal head of lettuce? Where people are like, that's a big head of it's lettuce. It's not cartoonishly big. No. Nah. If you're I'm conceited, still you have a find, big head. I'm still desperately trying to find the Spike Jones not theme there. of this place. There's got to be something other than he, just. He's a co-owner. That's the theme. He helped them pay for it. That's the theme of it. But did they sell? <laughs> was the like meat funny? Did the did, uh, candies workers were they making chocolate on a <laughs> on a factory line and? It got sped up. Is that the sort of thing that was happening? Was it everything music pun? I yeah. just don't. And this is the funniest thing to happen in Locker Center. It's not the funniest thing. It's just a good market. It doesn't need to be funny. You got Spike Jones' face on it, and I can buy lettuce there. Yeah, <laughs> I hear I'll those heads it. are pretty big. <laughs> They're conceited, you know. This place is weird to me. Uh, it's normal. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's what's weird about <laughs> it. Is that it's normal. You don't know how to comprehend that it's normal. It's no. just named funny. Like a circus liquor isn't also like yeah, it's, it's not, not a ringleader. Yeah, yeah, it's not clown. There's no ringleader. There. I've never been inside. I, I don't know. I mean. Maybe the guy behind the counter is whipping lions or something. I have no idea. There's a man eating chicken back there. But it's just his lunch. It's just it's, a, it's, hey, Popeye's hey, is across the street. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, really, with Spike Jones Market. Although owned by a famous band leader, it seems to be remembered solely by locals who either worked there when they were young or families who depended on the market. So it's just a regular market. But it's like also I would furious if I was a Spike Jones fan. You know, I'm angry at this story. I've never been angry at a story you've told me before, but I'm upset about this. If I was a kid in the 50s and a Spike Jones market there and I walked in and the funniest thing is a big head of cabbage I'm gonna freak out <laughs> you gotta go to Hollywood if you want to see Spike you Jones want... Spike Jones isn't here I feel like this is a dialogue of an encounter <laughs> <laughs> listen kid I've got cow brains to mash I don't have time for this he goes behind the butcher counter and it's, <laughs> it's the funniest I hate this place I love it I wouldn't call it like a community hub but saying it was a local market wasn't enough I get like in the 50s I'm sure these kind of places you depended on them more so mm-hmm. a community was built around like the pharmacy I mean, if you're depending on that place for a good time oh my 
prepare to be. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> prepare to be very disappointed. I just disappointed. need toilet paper. I don't need a funny version of you only hurt the one you love. I just need toilet paper. I don't need that right now. <laughs> you only wipe the one you love? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that you're clearly vying for a job that doesn't exist anymore. Are they still hiring? <laughs> Is this grocery store named after a guy who was popular 60 years ago that wasn't even really related to him still hiring? It's the Weird Al liquor store. It's not funny. It's just yeah, the Weird Al liquor store. The same thing. Like if Weird, if Weird Al <laughs> opened up a re- like the same thing with Danny Trejo's tacos. Like I go to a Danny Trejo taco uh-huh. and I expect like oh, you're gonna, oh we're my gonna, god we're gonna throw the tacos <laughs> into your mouth and you're gonna drop kick my wife. <laughs> but it's it's just a taco place. I'm an entertainer, but I also am a businessman yeah. and I want to branch out. I know that there's it's something built around my name that people will come, but I'm not gonna be there throwing knives to sell out. Yeah, oh my he god. should be the people chopping up like the cabeza and stuff should be like foo, 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 foo. And, and Robert Rodriguez comes in at, with every order yeah there's a the sleazy surf fan yeah, yeah exactly yeah well you're you're asking too much I should be running this town. Oh I should God. be running the business bureau for Los Angeles because if if I had my way every place in this city would be a theme restaurant <laughs> no Brad Pitt you can't just open a store it's gotta be Ocean Eleven themed it's gotta be themed after the assassination of Jesse James by the cow Robert Ford it has to be themed that way that would be his car dealership the assassination <laughs> of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Ford? <laughs> we actually don't sell any Fords here, but you know, I just want to get people in the door. <laughs> it's a Toyota dealership. <laughs> like I was saying before, it's not a community hub, but markets were more dependent on. So it was like the place where the entire neighborhood ended up going. A marquee outside advertised not only the day specials, it also had like a little bulletin board for local births and events as well. Spike didn't live in La Crescenta, but his presence and his market seemed to really have an effect on the residents there. And although he didn't live there, his mother was a patient at Rockhaven Sanitarium. Oh, really? Toured. Yeah. That's, that, 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 well, the Greco brothers are remembered well what by... What was she known for? In the, <laughs> the way she would try to escape. Squeaky shoes. <laughs> heard it How all the way down to the Boulevard. Like I was saying, the Greco brothers, his brother-in-laws, are remembered well by Crescenta Valley folk. They offered a credit program for customers and regularly donated food to local charities. And above everything else, they were just friendly and remembered well by everyone. Like Elysian Heights, my area, we had Mr. Lee's store, which was our thing. And I swear to God, people have tears in their eyes when they bring it up still. Like it's still there. <laughs> There. Mr. Lee isn't there. That store is still there, but the chips are in a different place now. And there used to be arcade games, and now there's like a whole wine area because it's new Echo Park. So like, <laughs> I get that. Spike Jones's market made it all the way to February of 1971, being that loved place. And it took a 1971. 12... Yeah, that would be like today if it, it was like Mike uh, Milton Burrows. No, sausage, I'm trying but... to think of someone who is popular. Yes, the Milton Burrows Sausage Factory. Yeah, the who, Chris Kattan <laughs> Sausage Factory. Um, <laughs> or the guy from American Pie. Sausage Factory. It's so funny that you said 20 years ago and I keep going to the 80s. I'm like, no. And then I go to the 90s. I'm like, no, wait, no, that's still. Oh my I mean, God, you're Well, technically, but it's like the Y2K <laughs> Sausage Factory. <laughs> so it made it all the way to 1971. And all it took was a 12 second act of the planet to close it down. The Silmar earthquake of oh, 1971 no. shook that 1920s brick building and damaged it pretty well, badly. That's funny. <laughs> what kind of sound did it make when it fell? Was it wacky? And the building had to be demolished after that. Not funny. They measured the quake at 6.5, which today seems like worrisome, but not too terrifying. But back in 1971, before everything was reinforced, that quake killed 64 
people and it injured thousands more. The structure was rebuilt, but Spike Jones Market did not return. It's now a florist on the southeast corner of Foothill and La Crescenta. This isn't a huge story of Los Angeles history, but I think it's such a weird Los Angeles type thing, like a market named and yeah. co-owned by satirical band leaders you, <laughs> you see on TV. But what is more important, especially now with gentrification changing the face of the city, it's important that we shine a light on things that locals remember to keep the spark of the city's small history alive. That's most of it. I'd yeah. like to thank the indispensable Joanna Linkhorse, of course. I'd for like to thank my agent <laughs> and God for helping me do this story. I'd like to thank God for moving us from a small tide pool into a greater <laughs> existence. We now walk on legs. And uh, my agent for doing nah. the same thing. And the producer of this segment, Aaron Mankey. The indispensable Marcet Aaron Crockett. Crockett. <laughs> additional research Tom by Marcet Crockett. <laughs> Editing by Tom Arnold. <laughs> Joanna from Rockhaven helped me a lot. For this one, she put me in contact with Mike Lawler. All the articles online, pretty much done by him. Mike Lawler, I'm like, ah, I would like to meet this guy one day. He's the guy we know from Rockhaven who's really tall with a beard. The really nice guy. Hi, Mike. Um, hey, Mike. Nice beard. Way to be tall. I hope you thank God for that. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd call Spike... How aggressive you are. <laughs> I'm angry about this still. I'd call Spike Jones a sellout, but it wasn't even him. It was his... his Who was it? His, his in-laws. His in-laws. But yeah, They're the sellouts. Um, yeah, that's what I was kind of curious. I couldn't really figure out how involved he was. He was like, yeah, put my name on it. But will be in seats. Or were they sort of like, we need you to... Or did they do it without I, his... You know, it, it, the it, way I see it is yeah. probably his family was like, you know, he's what's he going to say? What's he going to... Who's it hurting? It's well, not hurting that tells anymore. you a lot about what you think about in-laws, so... Yeah. They're always trying to use my name. <laughs> They're always throwing my name around whenever they go anywhere. You know who my soon-to-be son-in-law is? No. <laughs> That's why we should be seated at this Italian restaurant right now. My son-in-law has a podcast. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Who's yeah. the sound engineer on the podcast? He is. <laughs> who edits it? He, he does. does. How much money does he make? Little. <laughs> Very little. <laughs> Very little. I mean... I yeah. like the idea a lot. It reminds me of when the Birches and the Ricardos open up that restaurant. It has that same sort of flair of like band leader opens up a little store and we should all flock to it like i like that well let's get to my first story nah this is someone who's not just some sellout well actually he was well let's nah. get into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't want to eat crow on that one <laughs> it's just a story of sellouts this, uh, this whole episode that's is just, the theme yeah we found it we found the concept <laughs> sellouts of los angeles toss salad mike jones is in the sellout i thought you said toss salad and i thought toss salad right, right now and episode 69 forgot to mention this is episode 69 everybody mmm mm. Summer. Something, it's almost 70. So some men seek fame. Some men seek fortune. Like, Spike Jones. But those men are all fools because the only thing worth seeking in this world is the Ark of the Covenant. Oh That's my the golly. one thing. I want the phone to call God and tell him, thank you. Hello, God, are you there? <laughs> it's me. It's me, Antonia Frederick Fuderer. <laughs> That's who we're going to be talking about. This is somebody I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Why? Just because of how he's been described to me. Okay. The inspiration for Indiana Jones. He has to have a hat, right? That's a fedora all. and a, he's just a hat brown <laughs> <laughs> So again, that name, Antonia Frederick Frederick Fuderer. Not even Antonio? No, it's weird. I kept thinking like, well, certainly this is spelled wrong or he's yeah. a woman. Gender norms certainly must apply in this story, <laughs> right? So not much is known about this man with the first <laughs> with the first name of a woman and the last name of a hot dog. He was born June 12th, 1871 in Whoa. Sydney, Australia. This one's for our Australian. Our hey down, down under. Stop it. Don't do that. Stop oh, that. They don't like that. Emma. <laughs> Emma. This is an episode of a podcast. Do they play backwards in <laughs> in Australia? We're so sorry. I can't do it. Willoughby Wallaby. <laughs> uh, his dad was from Germany and his mom was from Denmark. Okay. So naturally, Antonia dropped out of school in the third grade. I'm putting down every country. You in. <laughs> really are swinging hard today. I wrote Were that. Were you on Twitter earlier? Is this what happens when you go on Twitter? I checked Twitter and suddenly <laughs> I got inceled. 
take that to countries not known for dropping out of school. He decided instead of learning how to read to learn how to weave wow. cane furniture in his dad's cane You're furniture kidding. business. So he was just making like cane it, furniture. His dad didn't just write in a Bible journal all day. Sorry, I'm. I'm just you, trying to go along with the movies. Are still putting down Australia? Oh, you're, oh you're, no, you're putting down Indiana Jones now. Yeah, no, it's Henry. He's learning his dad's business, carrying umbrellas or whatever yeah. Sean Connery did in that movie. Cane and weaving, you said? Weaving cane oh, furniture. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. No, he's not making canes. No, he's not, not raising, raising canes. Cane. <laughs> uh, he was citizen cane, though. And then the Australian gold rush hit. I, I know. That okay. was the almost the most surprising part of this yeah. story, that there was an Australian gold rush. I had to look uh, at a map and like, they're not California. How'd the gold get there? <laughs> what, they steal our gold, those criminals? <laughs> I'm so sorry, Australia. <laughs> I'm so sorry the two people we know from yeah. Australia who have been so nice to us, which is rare for an Australian. This was, the, <laughs> this was the 1890s, and Antonio was now 26 years old. So he decided to travel west to Kalgoorlie. I assume our Australian fans can only be happy with the way I pronounce that. So he went there to dig up some of those money potatoes. Gold. Stop that. Problem was, he kept getting appendicitis. But he keeps getting it. <laughs> and he had to go home before he struck it rich. I guess he struck it rich in bile in his appendix or whatever. <laughs> You'd know more than I would. He almost died, but while he was healing, he opened up a Bible for the first time ever. Speaking of Indiana Jones' yeah. dad, first time ever, he opened it up and the page said, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Fosters, Australian for God. We've gotten through like a half a paragraph of this and I've made fun of Australians more than I ever have in and my life. in every conceivable way. You've taken every stereotype and you've just... And I've made a few new Hail ones. Mary is just like hard throws across the lawn. Well, speaking of Hail Mary, back to the Bible. So Apparently that Bible verse meant something to him. So he swore then and there. <laughs> apparently it's that Bible gibberish. It meant something to him. I know, that nonsense. Um, now I'm taking down religious people. <laughs> Everybody watch out tonight. I'm angry from this Spike Jones story. He made me question God. He swore that if he survived his appendicitis, he would devote his life to teaching the Bible, and he did, and he did. Did you make that promise when you got appendicitis? Yeah, yeah, I promised that I was going to give my appendix to our Lord and Savior. Thank you for giving me something that my body rejected. I didn't need this. Thank you for that. that. I want to thank God for this unnecessary organ. <laughs> I believe this is yours, God. <laughs> you, threw it. you threw it into the sky. Take it back. I want two peepees. Once he was strong enough, he went back to the gold fields of Western Australia, but this time instead of mining for gold, he was mining for God. Oh my God. <laughs> Keep the L. You take it back. You take it back. <laughs> he started preaching across 3,000 miles of the Australian West to anyone who would listen. It's the worst Western I've ever heard of. <laughs> Once upon a time in the Australian West. He has to reach for his holster, but it's a Bible. He got in a shootout with a kangaroo, <laughs> a godless kangaroo. This sounds like he was the inspiration for not just Indiana Jones, but also both the main characters for There Will Be Blood. <laughs> <laughs> he started out as Daniel Faraday or whatever. Is that his name? No, Daniel, uh, Daniel Plain. View. Who's Daniel Faraday? We're going to look it up later and we're all going to giggle. It was during this time... Probably a Nazi or something. <laughs> that guy who took over for Hitler. <laughs> it was during this time that he met a man named Alexis Jeffries, who is an evangelist, but also the dad of soon-to-be heavyweight champion of the world, Jim Jeffries. Not, Not the comedian Jim Jeffries, who is also Australian, which made this even more confusing. <laughs> Jeffries sent Fooderer and his wife Alma on a mission to convert the godless souls of America in 1911. So now Fooderer was stationed in Oakland, California, which at this point was probably just a bunch of 
failed gold miners like himself. So yeah. he fit right in. Oh, we have something to talk about. Yeah. Remember when we didn't find gold? <laughs> I remember that time. Remember when we all had to eat our own shoes? <laughs> so here he was in Northern California trying to get everyone to convert to be really Christian before the hippies took over. And his secret weapon was the way he taught it that he had devised himself. He created a book in 1918 called Fooderer's Iographic Holy Land Bible Travelogue Rapid Visual System. It should probably just be two words, friend. But read the acronym, Greg. <laughs> Is the acronym something? I wasn't paying attention to all the words. I'm trying to think of one more Australian thing to make fun oh, of, but oh, I just, oh. it's an acronym for Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Basically, what it was, was a dumbed-down, simplified version of the Bible with maps and pictures and family trees. Ooh, it's fun now. Yeah, it's Lord of the Rings <laughs> and the Bible, the two most easy things to read. But the two things that set his system apart were that it came with slides. You're kidding. That you could project that showed drawings of scenes from the Bible that he had hand-colored. And more importantly, it had this giant chart that had everyone from the Bible's names and dates and lines connecting them all. Like that a was, spreadsheet. It was so big that it took up an entire wall of your house. So when you put it up, you were looking at the entire story of the Bible in one glance. Wow. Using this iographic system, he would teach people 10 lesson courses on the Bible, and it would tell you everything you need to know to get you started on religious fanaticism of your very own. Eventually, he started moving south from Oakland, teaching his method to anyone who would listen until 1924, when he ended up in Los Angeles. So we're now we're we're Here. home, baby. We did it. He started a mission at Adams and Grand near USC where he was able to set up shop to teach people with this giant FBI sting operation flowchart of the Bible that he had going. <laughs> but how did he... Oh, hmm. Jebediah uh, was last singing with Ishmael. They're finding all the bodies in these squares where these red pins are. I think that this is where God's going to strike next. <laughs> he's taken Sodom he's taken Gomorrah David and Goliath were found here he's heavily fortified up on Mount Sinai <laughs> he called this place the Holy Land Bible Knowledge Society and he wasn't restricted of who could attend he, anyone who believed in God yeah. could come he was offering these classes all faiths anyone who was interested pretty okay. soon though he changed the location of the society into his own house at 2215 Lakeview Avenue in Silver Lake so if you've okay. ever taken the two into Echo Park you've driven right by it really? it's, you, it's like right next to the freeway if you're driving into Echo Park I think it's on the right it's probably a wall, but like if you were to look through that wall, if you mm-hmm. had some sort of godlike powers, yeah, some sort of omnipotence, if you had somehow unleashed the powers of the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> or something like that, which is what he was trying to get it for. I want to look through this wall. See my, my dogs okay? Did I leave the oven now? My dogs okay? Before I get home, I want to see if my <laughs> dogs are okay before I get home and find out they're not okay. I remember that this was the time that Amy Simple McPherson was doing her religious thing yeah. just down the street, and they were actually friends, oh, Fooderer wow. and McPherson. So now he was running a Bible. I can help you go missing. Go ahead. <laughs> so now he was running a Bible society with classes out of his home. So it wasn't quite a cult, but he did have some of his students living there with him and they had their own printing press to publish his teachings and hand out flyers. Nobody's been killed yet, so it's not a cult. (laughs) He also apparently felt he could heal people because one time he saw a guy hunched over with a cane walking by his window and Footerer healed him from the window and the guy threw his cane away and ran to catch a bus. (laughs) He probably just wanted like, I need a discounted fare. But then when he's, I'm missing the bus. I can't do this, this long con anymore. It's taking too long. But now for the part about him that interested me, that what got us here, the, yeah. the hint of him being Indiana Jones. <laughs> in 1926, he decided that just reading about all these things was one thing. What if he could go and find hard proof that the events of the Bible actually happened? Hell yeah. I want it. I want it. I want, I want it. fingerprints. <laughs> that year, he decided he was going to go to the Holy Land and find them for himself. He traveled to Israel, Palestine at the time, 
and the surrounding countries, which had names too. <laughs> he started purchasing and collecting millennia old artifacts and sending them back to LA as a growing collection of tangible objects from the old Bible days. Every note, this belongs in a museum. This belongs in a museum. This belongs in my museum. <laughs> Ooh, an old thing. This belongs in my museum. This thing that I don't own. Apparently in Jericho, he also met and became friends with Henry Ford. Wow. Which must have been uncomfortable was- for Ford being around so many Jews, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what he was doing there. Aside from just buying old trays and meeting rich American anti-Semites, Fooderer was in the Middle East for one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. Get it. So let's make this story, the story of the Ark of the Covenant, part of the official L.A. Meekly canon. Okay. Let me give a brief rundown of the Ark of the Covenant. Please. Do, what do you know about that? What you, what, I got a question for you. From what I know from only the movie, if I believe correctly, and I think you laughed at me before, it's a way to communicate with God. Ha, 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 ha. It's what David used to be Goliath with. Yeah, he no slingshotted the Ark of the Covenant into him. It was the holding case of the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Moses brought them down from Mount Sinai, and they eventually built this thing to carry them around in the desert in before they got to Israel. Moses had just willy Moses nilly. didn't need a case. Yeah, willy-nilly. It, it was a pretty big deal in Judaism, allegedly. It was stored in Solomon's big temple in Jerusalem until 587 BC when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, who I think lived in Echo Park, and it disappeared forever. Enter Antonia Fooderer. He did extensive research on the Ark and decided it was not in fact lost, but was instead hidden under either Mount Nebo or Mount Pisgah in Jordan. So he headed to Mount Nebo where he met the Sheik of Nebo who made a contract to work together in their search for the Ark of the Covenant. They shook hands and said, Wahad, meaning we are one. And Fooderer's search was on. On this search, he became the first person to drive a car to the top of Mount Nebo, which was actually too hard to do. So he had donkeys carry it up for him and then he just drove it down the other side. Hit the brakes. Slow down! Go faster. Go faster! (laughs) He presses on the brake and it's just contraption whip that's hitting the donkeys. Stabbing a donkey in the butt. (laughs) He looked for a while, but he wasn't finding anything, but he knew he had to be close. And one day by chance, he found a cave that was blocked up with stones. So he moved the rocks and he was lowered into the cave on a rope and the walls on the inside were covered with very old, ancient art. He then followed a 600 foot long corridor through the cave that led past many tombs and ended with two locked doors. It was directly directly underneath a church that I think is still on top of this mountain. So some people believe that the Ark was in this church. This cave that he found was in the heart of the mountain underneath this church. According to him, there was an inscription above these doors. This might have been a giveaway that said, herein lies the golden Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) It could mean anything. (laughs) I'll spend some days decoding it. But He was confident that the Ark was behind these doors, but he wasn't equipped to get through them. And when he got back out and he asked the authorities permission to continue his search, they said no. So he just gave up and accepted that it must not have been a good time for God to yeah. have his Ark discovered. So he just let it go. That's where his search for the Ark ended. Wow. He spent about two years in the Middle East sending back treasures, no Ark. Uh-huh. All these treasures, meanwhile, they went to his house. It became a collection slash museum that eventually took over his entire <laughs> There were artifacts from Israel, Egypt, Damascus, Babylon, Cyprus. Some of the things were 5,000 years old. Eventually, it was just, he was just living in a museum. It was called the Palestine Exhibition, then later the Egyptian Exhibition, and eventually the Holy Land Exhibition as it's known today. Whether he had gotten as close to finding the Ark of the Covenant as he claimed, it was all good publicity, and that was probably more important to him than finding the Mm -hmm. Word of God. The Los Angeles Examiner had been writing about his quest for the Ark and started referring to him as the Ark Explorer. So to draw... 
even more attention to his museum and his teaching program, of course. In 1931, he made it into Ripley's Believe It or Not by setting the record for the longest sermon ever at 20 hours long. It was also the same day that the record was set for most children throwing tantrums and asking, (laughs) when are we going to the Sizzler in one 20-hour stretch? He even wrote Palestine Speaks, which was one of the first modern travel guides for the Middle East. Aside from inspiring Indiana Jones many, many years later, he was inspiring Hollywood in his time also. A lot of the actual artifacts he brought back were loaned to people like Samuel Goldwyn to use in early movies that took place in the Middle East. They use actual artifacts? Yeah, some of the stuff was from his museum. Do you have anything? uh, I know this is 3,000 years. Do you have anything that's 8,000 years old? (laughs) Um, So you didn't bring back the Ark of the Covenant? We wanted to use it in... Gidget. We wanted to use it in a Gidget movie. No, that's way too late. The ideas and imagery he had brought back to Los Angeles is also rumored to have shaped the look of movies that came just after his time, like Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments came from his sort of narrative of what the Middle East was like. And it wasn't just stuff in the museum that he got himself. People were also donating to his collection. At the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, a group of Egyptologists had an exhibition on ancient Egyptian artifacts there, but they didn't want to have to bother transporting it all back to Egypt, so they just gave it to him. Whoa, really? (laughs) The carry-on policy is kind of crazy. (laughs) They changed the rules (laughs) since the thing started. Now King Tut has to buy his own seat. Uh, Have we talked about, it was some... Walk like an Egyptian, the Bengals? Oh, that's what I meant. Uh, Is that by no doubt? There there was some, there was the mummy of some pharaoh that they were transporting out of Egypt to like England or something, Uh and they made it get a passport. You're kidding. Have you haven't seen this picture? So (laughs) it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's a passport photo of a 3000 year old desiccated face. And it says his name like Tutamhotep the third profession pharaoh. (laughs) And it was like date of birth 4700 BC. (laughs) You know that they didn't need to do that. And they're just like, just make them do it. I bet they'll do it. I bet they'll do anything to get that mummy across. And they show that you actually did it. (laughs) Make them get a driver's license. Make them get a Staples Rewards card. Does he have a checking account? (laughs) So they have this sarcophagus that's 2,700 years old. They have ears of a type of Egyptian corn that's extinct. Whoa. But they have it. I guess it's not extinct. They have a salt stone that's believed to be a piece of the woman who looked back at Sodom as it was being destroyed and turned into salt. Wow. So there's a piece of her there. There's more modern objects as well. They have props from Casablanca and a bunch of Rudolph Valentino stuff and the praying Jesus wood carving that was in one of the old rooms at Clifton's. That might sound weird to have next to a piece of the biblical salt lady, but it still all fits the theme of the people, places, things relating to this romantic vision of the old Middle East that Futuro was cultivating. Casablanca, Rudolph Valentino, the sheik and all that, which at the end of the day, as well intended as his intentions of teaching the Bible to people might have been, he was also marketing the idea of the holy land to people. His house slash museum used to even have this thick garden of palms out front of it, so you got the feel of it. He had even at one point tried to raise money to build a tourist resort on Mount Nebo. Not gonna go over well. Tell you right now. I know you don't want me crashing through history and finding the <laughs> sacred Ark of the Covenant, but what if I just open like a sandals resort <laughs> on top? That that's better, right? We'll give you two nets free. Access the swimming pool. Listen, chic. <laughs> you can have towels every day. He left LA for good in 1949 and moved to Cyprus, where he died on my birthday, September 25th, 1951. Oh. Mark Hamill's birthday, 1951. His legacy was carried on by his secretary after he died, who used his notes to make a little booklet called Adventures of the Golden 
Ark Explorer, which perpetuated the mystique of Fooderer. And the Holy Land exhibition is still there today at the same location. It's now run by Betty Shepard and her daughter Karen, who have been tending the place and living there for close to 40 years. And you can take a tour with them. They have no website to visit, so you have to call them. It costs $2.50 and lasts about two hours. And at the end of it, you get some grape Kool-Aid and a tea cracker and a sucking candy. That sounds nice. Did you take it? No, I, I, because it's like a personal tour. So I'm uncomfortable going without you. Okay, that's fair. You want me to mispronounce stuff? Like, this guy's an idiot, right? We're all friends. Does he even know who Beelzebub is? (laughs) This guy's so stupid, right? Betty. But there was another who also carried on Fooderer's work into the modern era, aside from George Lucas. In 1981, a guy from Kansas named Tom Croster got a hold of Fooderer's notes on where he believed he had found the Ark of the Covenant, and he went to that cave. Through the corridor, found the locked doors again. However, instead of asking for permission like Fooderer did, he broke the doors down illegally. This was Halloween 1981. Wow. Which (laughs) sounds... That sounds like yep. Halloween 1981. It was a crazy storm that night. A lot of people's faces melted. <laughs> Appropriately, behind the doors, it was a crypt. And in the middle of it were some carrying poles and a golden chest that fit the measurements given in the Bible of the Ark of the Covenant. And he didn't dare touch this chest, but he took pictures, which he refused to release to the public. Instead, he claimed that God told him that there was a banker named David Rothschild, who was a direct descendant of Jesus, and that he, he didn't give me all of his money. He said that he was the only one one who should be shown the way to the Ark. Rothschild didn't care, and he ignored this guy, so he just kept the pictures hidden. But a few years later, an archaeologist managed to convince him to let him see the pictures, which did show what he described, an Ark, a golden Ark in the middle of the room, but he wasn't convinced of their authenticity. But after Croster came out with this story, the country of Jordan canceled all archaeological expeditions in their land, so nobody else is allowed to try to find what may or may not be in the middle of that mountain. Good job, Kansas guy. Way to ruin it for all of us <laughs> amateur archaeologists. <laughs> That's very exciting. I'm always interested in where the Ark of the Covenant might be. The Ark of the Covenant was inside of all of us <laughs> all along. So take a pickaxe to my heart, Greg. <laughs> take a pickaxe to my heart. This is recording, right? This is- <laughs> he said I could do it. Let's get <laughs> back from... yeah back to Egypt. I'm hey, there's this pharaoh who wanted a passport. We have to see your passport. <laughs> That's what they were saying to the pharaoh. <laughs> they making weird old Kali- dead things. No, not Kali Ma. <laughs> It's also, that's Indiana Jones, but I'm thinking of what the mummy says. <laughs> I don't think the mummy says anything. Uh, not the Boris Karloff mummy, but the oh, Brendan yeah. Fraser mummy yeah, might Brendan say Fraser something. Brendan Fraser mummy said, yeah, probably said the name of a bug or something. Yeah. Okay. Scarab beetle. <laughs> Scarab beetle. Don't watch the Scorpion King. Okay. Roller derby. <laughs> it's something I've wanted to cover because it's pretty popular in Los Angeles and has a history of being popular and then very quickly not popular. This it's episode had a long is trend. all over the place. Really this is, is the craziest. We went from a, a grocery drawer. store in La Crescenta mm-hmm. to the Mount Nebo excavation Ark of the Covenant and now roller derby. <laughs> he didn't punch one Nazi, by the way. Kind we of don't know. The Nazis we don't know. didn't exist yet. Uh, Maybe his the last thing he did was punch a Nazi because that's the last thing you'll ever do. <laughs> like I was saying, roller derby has a lot of ups and downs throughout the history of Alabama. I get it. It's when. Hi. It's all right. (laughs) Yeah. What just happened was somebody came in holding about a dozen roses and said, I just came and then backed out. Mm -hmm. I think we almost got proposed to. I could use a wedding trip, right?
What do you think was happening? Like, was he planning to propose to somebody tonight? I think maybe he wants to be in this classroom because it's classroom tomorrow. Uh, and he wants to leave stuff around. We're doing you a favor, buddy. Whoever you're leaving those roses for does not want to walk into school on the first day of class <laughs> and see a bunch of roses. That's what it, it seems like a scene from The Crow. That was weird. Just as weird. The trend of roller derby. Sometimes it's really <laughs> popular. Sometimes it's not really popular. I've seen it with the derby dolls. You know, for a while it was a huge craze. And then the craze kind of died out in a few yeah. years. Well, that, that movie recently came out with uh juno didn't recently come out that was been a minute but yeah i know what you're talking about yeah that was part of the big craze and then like always dies out now the problem is like covering any sports team it's hard to research fun specifics you like following owners and players and big games and trends it's like covering prehistoric stuff like you're covering huge (laughs) changes over long periods of time i even found like a roller game semi-annual magazine pdf online and it starts with this how does one cover the history of 10 years (laughs) i'm asking you a few hundred words what events that seemed important at the moment they occurred are really of any interest to people who were not there and read about them in the cold light of history. Me! It's me! Uh, I want to know! You're talking about me! (laughs) And I'm not saying that there's not a way to cover this stuff definitively. I'm just saying I'm not good at it and I don't get paid enough to do it right. But nevertheless, I was very curious about a bygone but much loved Los Angeles roller derby team. The Spike Joneses. (laughs) No affiliation affiliation to them. That team is the Los Angeles Thunderbirds. I knew we couldn't dedicate a whole episode of the Thunderbirds so I submit this to the meekly junk drawer yeah, maybe we'll do this every few years. We'll um, we'll add, open it like, up, dump some stuff in. Yeah, I said every like other month. month. Yeah, every <laughs> month. month. I mean, is what we do normally not junk <laughs> in some sort of I don't know trunk. Roller derby is not an alley invention. Sadly, I can't seem to find where it started. I think it's a very much an East Coast thing. But the term roller derby has been tossed around since the twenties to describe roller skating races, which sounds pleasant and fun. But our idea of roller derby, which is not pleasant and super yeah, fun, yeah. is traced to August of nineteen thirty-five at the Chicago Coliseum, thanks to a ballyhooey event promoter named Leo Seltzer. What ex- <laughs> Mm-hmm. So this guy was made by Spike Jones, nah. right? <laughs> yeah, this is a character he played. He had experience promoting Depression-era events like walkathons. So this guy reads in a magazine that 90% of Americans, even Depression-era they, Americans... They didn't have the energy to run. All marathons canceled yeah. due to depression. Walkathon. So this guy reads in a magazine that 90% of Americans, even Depression-era Americans who were eating rugs to survive, <laughs> they all owned a pair of roller skates. <laughs> what? Why? I have no idea. I have <laughs> We had zero to sell idea. my wedding ring <laughs> and we sold your grand. Emma, but we got you those roller skates. We can never sell these roller skates. There's a man outside offering me $100 for them, and I, I just can't give them away. We just keep eating the rug. I'm going to go jump off of the Sears <laughs> Tower now. Just always remember... remember. Roller skates. Never sell the roller skates. <laughs> no matter how desperate. If your mother has to sell her body so you kids can have bread on the table. As long as it's not the roller skates. So he finds out that 90% of Americans have roller skates and he thinks, and he thought, how can I use this information to earn enough money to buy more rugs to eat? (laughs) So an old-timey event promoter that he was, he was tasked with the job of creating an event for the Chicago Coliseum. So he put his information about roller skates to use and one day in a flurry of inspiration, wrote down the ideas of a new sport on a napkin and created the Transcontinental Derby, which is weird because it's transcontinental meaning crosses state lines. But from descriptions, you're going to love this. There was a series of two persons teams. I don't know how many teams, but each team had a man and a woman skating around a track. What I'm guessing this means is you had to skate the distance from New York to San Diego. What? 2,700 miles around the track, meaning 57,000 times. Think about what he had promoted before. There were walkathons. How is. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, Did anyone do this? Yeah. How? What do you mean? How could somebody in one you, sitting or like. You want to know how long it took? Three weeks. Wait a minute. No, they had to have taken break. It had to have I'm been. I'm sure there was breaks. It must have been like man goes, she needs 
it's maybe. eight hours of sleep woman goes maybe whenever i mean if you're thinking about they can't do that because it sounds horrible and miserable that was the gimmick for i don't even know what the prize yeah, was well, for this thing <laughs> the prize was a new pair of roller skates <laughs> that's absurd that's that's inhuman yeah that's not possible they shoot horses don't they <laughs> yeah it sounds like don't a shoot the roller skates though don't do not even play like that <laughs> shoot my wife don't shoot my roller skates <laughs> yeah it said that have taken three weeks it was fifty-seven thousand laps around a flat track luckily the sport evolved from that death march on roller skates two years later seltzer teamed up with the sports writer damon runyon to come up with a full contact sport that involved points and a time limit so let's go over the rules of roller derby because i remember going to one derby dolls game like 10 years ago and loving it but not understanding the rules as it turns out fans of the thunderbirds also didn't get the rule <laughs> on the track there's 10 skaters at a time five players for each team each team consists of four blockers and one jammer the jammer's job is to lap the track before the blockers on the other team can do what is necessary to stop them as a blocker you block like quidditch uh yeah <laughs> I always thought it was a really BS move that if you catch the, what's it called? The golden snitch. The golden snitch that you get to bypass the entire game. It's not a bypass of the entire game. That's the only way the game ends. That's the only way the game ends? Wait a minute. What's the scoring for? That's a good question. Then why are we even bothering putting a ball through a hoop? That's Hermione's a very... there with a guy and you're like, what? You're dating this guy? Hey, maybe I'm confused about the rules of Quidditch. <laughs> I could have, because they've talked about like the, the longest game of Quidditch yeah. lasted for a month. Were they doing just laps? Yeah, they, they had to go from England to Mount Nesbo. Okay, yeah, I don't know the rules of Quidditch. I don't know the rules of Roller Derby. They're okay. both made up fantasy sports <laughs> to me. <laughs> like I was saying, Jabberjaw? Jabberjaw. Are we talking about Jabberjaw now? Yeah, do you want to Now talk? I can talk. <laughs> now I know the rules of oh. Jabberjaw. <laughs> He's that shark. Hanna-Barbera made him. He talks a lot. He's pretty <laughs> funny. The Jammer's job is to lap the track before the blockers on the other team can do what is necessary to stop him. As a blocker, you block the other team's jammer and you try to make a path of success for, for your, your jammer. jammer. Each round is a jam that lasts two minutes 30 seconds between each jam the game itself is two 30 minute periods of skating the two jammers have to make a strong lead out of the pack before the blockers catch up they say that it, you're not allowed to hit them in the face <laughs> you're not allowed to make contact with their back knees lower legs feet heads Wait a minute, uh, then what do you make contact with i'm pretty sure i've seen that like all yeah, the that's time all they do. that's all they do is slam into each other do we talk about why it's mostly a women's sport no not really the thunderbirds will get to it we're a co-ed team i think that they played separate they were men one round women on the other round and they're all on the same team i don't know how it evolved into just a female thing but i'm cool with that you love women on women violence if there's points <laughs> the rules were explained in a new york times article by jennifer harlan thank you very much for explaining it because i tried going through the i'd like to thank god and jennifer harlan track derby association's rules and regulations page and it was gibberish so let's get us to la <laughs> women 1949, the roller derby became incredibly popular around the country, with the sport having airtime on ABC, and by 1953, the craze was showing signs of being on its way to its dying days that quickly. To try to keep it alive, Seltzer moved the headquarters from the East Coast to California. I think Los Angeles. I just couldn't find out where. So in 1959, Seltzer transferred the reins to his son, Jerry Seltzer. Jerry carried the sport through the 60s. Wait a minute. Cherry Seltzer? No, Jerry Seltzer. Oh. When Jerry took over, he took the derby to the Bay Area, and with that, created a hole in Southern California roller derby. Many players from the roller derby league, like Red Smart, Ralphie Valadares, Helen Liska, Terry Lynch, John Hall, they did not want to relocate. Luckily, they didn't need to. Now enter Herb Roberts. A former skater, he created the National Skating Derby Incorporated based here in Los Angeles, and he created his own league, and he called it Roller Games. So Jerry Seltzer, he had roller derby. Herb Story's making me thirsty. Good. Thirsty from our knowledge. Herb Roberts had roller games. It's just like a different league of the same. They're like spiritual rivals, basically. As far as I can tell, same game, different name, but barely. <laughs> With the creation of this new league came the first team, the Los Angeles 
Thunderbirds, or as they're also known, the LA T-Birds. That's pretty cool. That's a good name for LA. I think it is, yeah. The T-Birds. The T-Birds, that's a good one. Yeah. They had these really great patriotic colors. They were red, white, and blue with a big bird on the logo. Other debut teams included the Detroit Devils, the Chicago Cyclones, the Texas Outlaws, later get New York Bombers, the Arizona Chargers, San Francisco Shamrocks, and the Hawaii Warriors. None of those make sense. <laughs> the first jam wouldn't be held until next year, 1961, and by that time, Herb Roberts sold the NSD to a man named Bill Griffith senior griffiths really becomes the main guy for roller games and it's described as a suave former ad man i've also read that he was a tv pitch man what's a tv pitch man he pitches tv shows to people isn't that like a writer or does he do the job of a writer to pitch a tv show I have no idea because if so i'd like to hire him <laughs> bill griffiths i need you don draper boys. i need you <laughs> so yet another flamboyant ringleader the roller games like most roller derby was multi-ethnic and co-ed meaning white boys on twitter would have hated it why are you forcing me to look at diversity you keep telling me to use Twitter, and I keep saying those things on Twitter, <laughs> and now you're complaining about it? There's diversity. There's the alt-right neo-Nazis and KKK. That's diverse. <laughs> I read that somewhere that co-ed teams will do alternate jams, like the women and the men. I've also seen matches on YouTube. I'm pretty sure I've seen one where there's men and women on the same track doing the same jam, but I That's could be disgusting. wrong. So I'm going to talk about this on Twitter. And then work as hard. All of this about Thunderbirds and Roller Derby, I've read so many different contradicting things. It's kind of crazy. Your information was getting jammed. Like they were saying, like, I'll talk about it after I talk about this next thing. Although early tracks were said to be in El Monte, the first match would be held at a place that would become their home, a place the Thunderbirds are synonymous with, the Olympic Auditorium. At Grand and 18th Street in downtown, the Olympic was known for all kinds of sports, primarily boxing, wrestling, as my dad says, wrestling, and Roller Derby. It held... Wrestling at Fosties? Fosties Freeze? Wrestling at Fosties. It held 9,000 people, and it was built in 19. 24 or 25 for the Olympics. Now, during the 32 Olympics, the Olympic Auditorium held competitions for old-timey boxing, old-timey wrestling, and good old-timey wholesome weightlifting. Since 2005, though, it's been a Korean megachurch, the Glory Church of Jesus Christ, and I literally stare at it from Traytech all the time, and I had no idea that that was the Olympic. <laughs> they played all kinds of venues in Los Angeles. They played the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, the Sports Arena, the Fairgrounds in San Bernardino, and one time they played at the Forum. They were also the first team to play at the Long Beach Arena. The uh, first team of anything? Or just from what I read, yeah. Not much is really written about the first season of roller games, but as obvious is that it became wildly popular. And the T-Birds were very quickly, they were huge and they had a loyal fan base. Also, what's important was that the team was very good at the sport. They were packed with former derby skaters like Ralphie Valadares, who was later nicknamed Living Legend, John Hall, Honey Sanchez, Gwen, Skinny Minnie Miller, Shirley Hardman, Danny Riley, Terry Lynch, Ronnie, Psycho Reigns. The general manager and coach of the T-Birds was a former derby skater as well, Marion Red Smart, Smart with two Ts. He led the team to several championships and as soon as 1963 they won the president's cup which i'm sure is a thing <laughs> undoubtedly though the most popular and still loved thunderbird is ralphie valadares he was born in guatemala but came to la specifically hollywood park with his family when he was 12 he was a short guy and he was trying to be a horse jockey but i think like he grew like an inch and a couple extra pounds and they're like mm -mm, you can't get no you're we don't gonna... want these horses to die <laughs> you're gonna literally kill a horse with your 115 pounds he decided to turn his attention to roller skates because roller skates will never kick you to death so he signed up for a roller derby at 17 he was first on the roller derby Derby League team, the Los Angeles Braves, where he was called the Guatemalan Flyer or Little Ralphie. Try to figure out which name he liked more. Little Ralphie! Little Ralphie's here. You mean the Guatemalan Flyer? No, Little Ralphie! <laughs> this opportunity, the roller derby that has allowed him to skate all over the U.S. and gain all kinds of experiences. And by the time the Roller Games League started up with the Thunderbirds, Little Ralphie was a well-rounded professional derby skater. And he was really good. His wife Please, was also... I'm Little Ralph now. <laughs> blood all over his knuckles. His wife was also a Thunderbird, Gloria Sweet Honey Sanchez. He liked her so much that he married or twice. Ralphie skated all through the Bill Griffiths period and he was like the team's all-time scorer. He even landed a role in the Rock 
Cal Welch Derby movie, Kansas City Bomber, which has a great cover, but I've seen clips online. I'm like, I'm talking about a bomber soon. Hmm, weird. Many fans remember watching all of the Thunderbird games on Channel 5, KTLA, and just like Vince Scully is the unofficial Dodger, the Thunderbirds' unofficial members were sports announcers Dick Lane and Bill Hoppy Haupt. <laughs> that sounds like something that would be on KTLA 5. Dick Lane was known for, like, if there was a brawl or a particularly good jam or a block, he'd shout, Whoa, Nelly! <laughs> which I love, which is, that was his catchphrase. And he would sign off by saying, Goodbye, Nelly! <laughs> He'd say, get your tickets for next week's even bigger showdown by calling the Olympic Auditorium ticket office at Richmond 95171. Catch people, it. it seems like people have committed that phone designation to memory. And now when they think about that, they think about either boxing or roller derby. It's so <laughs> weird. But like, I remember bringing up the Thunderbirds to somebody else a while ago and they're like, yeah, Richmond 95171. Uh, <laughs> Advertising yeah. works. As opposed to Seltzer. Go get me lunch. Peggy, go get me lunch. Peggy, Peggy. it's a little bit different, but it's perfect. Peggy, lunch is perfect. <laughs> As opposed to Seltzer's Roller Derby League, which was by some accounts seemed more like a sport, Griffith's games were wilder, they were more dramatic, and they had higher scores. He really knew how to amp up the sport for TV, and it worked for a really long time, but that attention span can only hold for so long if there's nothing underneath. It's like mixing the halftime show with the game. Like, there was a lot of theatrics and stuff, so there was still a game there, but a lot of people went for, like, the fights, or... It was said that some of the brawls were staged. It would put that in line mm. with wrestling, but still... Yeah. It's Hello. not as... Exact... Wow. It's not as entertaining fans as just watching wrestling you know what i mean yeah so while roller games were hugely popular as popular as wrestling and boxing as popular as it was through the 60s by 1973 it almost all dried up what's strange is that just a year before 1972 many people were saying that that was almost like the peak year in popularity for roller games like just a year before that and it peaks and you hear about it everywhere and almost everyone agrees to not talk about it for 10 years afterwards <laughs> like that's just like any trend it's um amore mid that's amore it's midsomar it is midsomar yeah in 1969, Jerry Seltzer sued Bill Griffith's group for $15 million over the copyright of roller derby. I couldn't really find out what happened, but I know that by 1973, 40 years later, Seltzer was out. The economy was bad. People's interest- We're out of Seltzer? We're out of Seltzer. It's flat. <laughs> That's his grandkid. Flat Seltzer. Flat Seltzer. You're funny. You should work at Spike Lee's I store. I should work at Spike Lee's. Yeah, you should work at Spike Lee's <laughs> yeah, store. I'm going to work at Spike Lee's <laughs> grocery store. Was- I'm who they want. <laughs> I'm the face of that place. <laughs> Seltzer was out. The economy was bad. People's interest was going out. His own interest was waning so he sold the promotional rights of roller derby to Griffith and with that all of the US's professional roller skaters came under Griffith's roller games it's so weird that Pete like him and, and Ed McMahon that's the wrestling guy right not the Johnny Carson uh, sidekick McMahon is the wrestling guy who's Johnny Carson's sidekick Ed McMahon wait they're both named Ed McMahon I don't know if the wrestling guy's name is Ed McMahon McMahon is his last name I don't know if his first name is Ed it's the same thing it's weird that like a guy can own a made up sport yeah it's just like anything else we are talking about Johnny Carson's sidekick right we're talking about the guy who would sit on the couch and be like oh wow that's Curry, funny you that are you correct said, you are correct you ever watched the episode where he was drunk that was funny um i mean they're always drunk but the there's one episode seltzer sells his shares or whatever to griffiths seltzer sells shares so he sells it to griffiths just before the entire thing falls apart griffiths roller games which encompass insider all- trading he, he saw people were hula hooping now <laughs> griffiths roller games which encompass all leagues at roller derby just dragged on for two more years before roller games shut down in 1975 there was a weird resurgence in the 80s and since Bill Griffith still owned the rights. Vince McMahon. Thank you, Vince McMahon. <laughs> I'm just glad that you figured it out in the middle of me trying to do this. <sighs> You are correct, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Griffiths was back to promoting this weird resurgence of roller games and even got a television show back called Roller Games. And it was like 
roller derby type game yeah. rolling derby yeah rolling exactly <laughs> and it was very informed by the 80s they look it was have you seen running man with no. Arnold schwarzenegger it's no. very running like mm-hmm. punkish skaters jamming on mm-hmm. a track that included an alligator pit and a wall of death like it's so <laughs> so of course it died out again the final game of the griffith era was in 1993 and skating the game was the watermelon flyer himself oh, little no. ralphie little Ralph Ralph is back. The living he's out legend. of retirement <laughs> one more game <laughs> little ralphie's back little ralphie <laughs> from the first game to the last ralphie valadares Bill Griffith's son, Bill Griffith Jr., tried reviving the T-Birds and roller games in the 2000s, but it didn't hold. And with games being played sporadically through the years and then ending finally in 2009, the Thunderbirds website, which is where I got 80% of the helpful and actual helpful information, thank you, Scott Stevens, it says there that the team is currently inactive, which is a bummer. Like I said up top, this was not the end of roller derby. And in LA and Southern California, you can still catch a derby match pretty much. I mean, the derby dolls. Derby dolls is still around. SFV, roller derby, and Silmar is another big team or big group. But this era 1960s thunderbirds it's been immortalized by angelinos everything about them is remembered so fondly like the skaters the uniform the olympic dick lane channel five the way we talk about in and out being this fusion that equals southern california of a particular era the same thing with thunderbirds <laughs> and the city in the in the 60s it's fused together people's memories of it are so strong and can i add one more thing yeah we had fun 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 until the city took the t-birds away you are correct, sir. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if I hated every word of that. Not separately. <laughs> Strung together, yeah, I hated every word of it. But not, like, I don't hate the words that you said, just that you said them in that order. Can I add one more thing? Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? <laughs> my wife. <laughs> one and one more thing. Yeah, serious Borat. My wife. Wowie. We wow. Does it make you horny, baby? Um, so now l- let's get to my last one here. This is the biggest one of the bunch. Arguably the most important one. No. It kind of is. Whoa. Uh, um, you're calling it? This is more important than the Ark of the Covenant. You'll see why, but this guy kind of ruined the world in a sense. Okay. He kind of did exactly what he set out to do. It's... Is it God? <laughs> Are we back to that? Take it. Take this. <laughs> take my wife, please, God. A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Call the FBI. <laughs> I only need three of those letters to make a phone call. Take out A B C D E. <laughs> Oh, keep the B. This is the guy whose handiwork we touched on just in passing during our airport episode in the LAX segment. And I wrote repeat what he did for the sake of the story, but his name kind of gives it away. The Alphabet Bomber. Wow. But he wasn't born to marry and Joe Bomber. He was born Muharrem Kerbegovic on June 1st, 1943 in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia. In Soviet Russia and Yugoslavia births you. <laughs> As a kid, he had diphtheria. He was anemic. and Brag. He was pr- <laughs> So he had a perfect childhood. What's the big deal? And he was prone to seizures, which is bad even when you're not living in communist Yugoslavia. He was, however, very, very smart, which also probably isn't a great thing to be in communist Yugoslavia. After he he graduated high school. He worked as a design engineer for a year and a half before he moved to Germany to escape communism. Don't tell him what was on the east side of that country at the time. Where, <laughs> so what are you guys up to? Oh, no. Uh, what's, oh, golly. What's this? East Berlin. That looks nice. <laughs> that sounds nice. Where what he, do you mean we're all working in the factory and we partly own the factory? What? I don't get to buy a house. <laughs> so, no, we all live on big house. Prison. <laughs> um, so he went to Germany where he attended the Engineering University of Munich and studied oil hydraulics. He got his degree in mechanical engineering and then he went on to get his master's in hydraulic engineering, hail hydraulic. But it was during. Sounds like a Stark villain. It was during this time that he started showing the first signs of psychosis. He started hearing thoughts in his head that he did not like hearing, so he would hit himself to make them go away. Still, he managed to hang on during this. And, but still. But still. He got his degrees and after he graduated, he moved to Toronto where he had 
had some family. Don't get me started on the Canadians. <laughs> For eight months, he split his time between Toronto and Vancouver, which are on opposite sides of the continent, right. if you're not aware. I'm not aware. So he was working two different design engineer jobs. He had one in each city, and he would commute like week here, week there, week here, week there. He was having an affair on his job yeah. with another he, job. <laughs> once he got sick of that, he finally came to LA in January 1967 to get a whole bunch of engineering jobs here since we were like the land of milk and honey of engineering at the time. Welcome to the holy land. Of milk. Of <laughs> Welcome to Dairyland. <laughs> he had different jobs all around the city and the surrounding area. One place he worked was WinTech Products, where some of the designs he made actually went into the Apollo program to land on the moon. Wow. So he was one of the masses of people that helped put a man on the moon. And that's why he's the most important <laughs> person here. I don't see God doing that. <laughs> he was a really bright guy and he was good at his job, but a lot of his co-workers considered him strange, hmm. mainly because he never spoke to them. He pretended to be mute in front of all of his co co-workers and never said a word. Why did he do this? Because he found that that immigrants, even though he wasn't a citizen, were still eligible to be drafted to fight in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, he yeah. decided to be deemed unfit for combat. He would pretend to be mute. So the problem was he didn't know when he was going to be drafted. So he had to keep up the ruse wow. at all times at work in case he got picked up and someone at work had to vouch that he was actually mute. So he never said a word to anybody. He I <laughs> bet bingo was real hard for him. And what does he have if not bingo? The <laughs> explanation he gave for why he was mute was that either he saw something traumatic happen to his mom at the hands of the secret police in Yugoslavia as a kid, or the Germans mistreated him during his time there, or something involving boiling water. It depended who was asking him. But what's that you say? I thought he was pretending to be mute. So how would he answer? notepads. Wow. He would write, he would communicate with everyone by writing notes to them on paper or pantomiming silently to them. That's how he would communicate. He also had a specific grunt of approval and a grunt of disapproval, which there's a guy who comes into my library who fits everything I'm oh describing God. here. During the times he had to communicate over the phone with people, he would do Morse code over the <laughs> phone to them. If he was talking to someone who didn't know Morse code in the year 1968, like when he was calling in sick, he had a friend named Hans Steiner call in for him. Little did they no, Hans Steiner was just him. Wow. But they didn't know what he sounded like. So, so he can get away with that. He got away with it. He was so dedicated to this that one time he burned himself at work and he didn't make a sound. He was completely silent. That is psychotic. The co-workers who did communicate with him said he liked to be called Moo because nobody could pronounce his name and he never seemed happy and he rarely ever smiled or laughed. He had views that weren't exactly close friend making, like saying that anyone who believed in God was weak <laughs> and that Nixon was too liberal. <laughs> but at home, he was definitely not mute. He was prone to threats and tantrums towards people. One time he threw his neighbor into the pool and he threatened to kill another one for making too much noise. So suddenly this guy's my hero. His girlfriend at the time said, these kinds of actions and Moo's impotence are what prompted me to leave. So now let's- You only got to pick one let's, lady. Let's talk about his impotence. Kerbegovic was a pretty lonely guy. Yeah. He would frequent these places that used to exist all over downtown called taxi dance halls. Have you heard of these? No. You heard of these places? Yeah. Huh? You heard about this? You see uh, this? Uh, you are correct, sir. They were named after a Joan Crawford movie from 1927 about these things. The way they worked was a lonely man would go inside and there would be a dance hall filled with a bunch of women and other lonely men. And this lonely man would buy a ticket and then give it to the girl of his choice. And that girl was obligated by the contract of the ticket to dance with you. So one night he was in one of these halls on Figueroa and he got a little too lonely. Uh -oh. And he went into the bathroom where he was arrested by a police officer for masturbating okay. in the bathroom. Right. Although he claims he was just squatting on the toilet. Okay. 
<laughs> All right. Well, how do you do it? I think you think squatting something else. He decided to represent himself in court with no legal experience whatsoever, even though he was supposed to be mute. And he actually managed to get himself acquitted wow. of the charge. So he was still terrified, though, because he was we'll afraid. We'll let you go. Just stop masturbating. <laughs> he was still terrified because he was afraid this whole incident would put his path to citizenship in jeopardy. And yeah. he was absolutely right about that. When he did try applying to become a citizen, his lewd conduct charge came up and put the process on hold. Right. And for some reason, he then decided that he wanted to open up his own taxi dance hall where you could pay a fee and get anything you want from a woman. Wow, okay, that's called something else, friend. It's a taxi dance hall. It's very wholesome. Go to the bathroom, see what happens. His application to open one was put in front of two LAPD police commissioners and a municipal judge, and he was denied because of the previous situation yet again. He saw this as discrimination against him for being an immigrant and for his lewd conduct charges, and now there was something new he wanted revenge. This is what set him over the edge. Nothing outwardly changed, but at work, he started bringing up topics that in 2019 would set off a ton of red flags, but in 1973, he was just a guy doing his thing. (laughs) He started asking his boss at RPM Industries how to build bombs, which again, 1973, his boss figured he's not going to make one. So he told him how to make a bomb. What, do you write a novel? (laughs) Oh, he became obsessed with talking about building bombs at work. And one time he even brought up a scheme that it would be a genius idea if someone were to set off a bomb, then demand. $10 million to not set off a second one. Wouldn't that be great? That's funny. Then he started spending a lot of time at the public library reading mm. recently declassified manuals from the government on how to build weapons. Then he started doing experiments on explosives in the labs at work, testing things out, which again, 1973, didn't even cross anyone's mind. Yeah. He's testing bombs at in- work. Independent study. Then on November 9th, 1973, his training was complete and he was ready to get revenge on the two commissioners and the judge that had Jeez. denied him his permit. That night, he he firebombed all three of their houses. Whoa, really? Nobody was killed, but there was absolutely no suspects because nobody gave Kerbegovic a second thought after they denied him his yeah. permit. So they couldn't think of anyone who might have had motive to do this. The only thing they knew was that all the houses were close enough to each other that it was possible that this was the act of one person. Right. Seven months later, Kerbegovic decided he wasn't ready to give up on his revenge, but this time he took things to a new level. He created a time-release explosive that he put into the gas tank of one of the commissioner's cars and blew it up. Again, nobody was killed, Uh but the commissioner got a phone call and the only thing he could hear on the other line was somebody breathing. Then he got a second phone call. This time a person said he was a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. The one that... The Patty Hearst people. And that the commissioner was scheduled to be executed by them at some point in the next 30 days. What what can I put you down for? (laughs) Do Mondays work? (laughs) Because you won't be working. And that if any of his family tries to interfere, they'll be killed also. This, of course, was Kerbegovic on the phone. Kerbegovic calling. He was not part of the SLA, but calling up with more threats after just attacking somebody was a whole new tactic for him. But he decided to give up his vendetta against these three local officials since he had failed to kill them four times now (laughs) and focus on the bigger picture. He wanted to now change the laws of the country. So on June 15th, 1974, he bought nine postcards in Palm Springs and this wasn't his Patreon duties for the month. (laughs) Each postcard was addressed to each of the nine justices of the Supreme Court and underneath the stamp, he put a tiny lead disc containing a vial of nerve gas. Wow. I almost said nerd gas. It kind of is. <laughs> Depends who makes it. Suck nerd gas, justices. <laughs> Escape on a hot air balloon. He put it under the stamp and they would release when they arrived in the presence of the justices and kill them. I don't know exactly how that okay. would work. Didn't matter. They were all the same postcard of Bob Hope's house in Palm Springs. That's funny. And he wrote on them all, it is justices of your greatness that made this nation so great. Respectfully, 
Bob Hope. Mr. Hope, we have a couple of questions for you. I don't How get big this, is the house? I don't, I don't get this new joke. Yeah. <laughs> What's your down payment? <laughs> All nine of these postcards were stopped at the Palm Springs post office the next day because the stamping machines broke the vials and they heard the snap. So they were pulled aside and they just thought there's toy caps for some reason yeah. under these stamps. Nothing happened though. No nerve gas. No nerve gas. It was yet, no nerve gas. It was, it was yet another failed terrorist attack that Kerbegovic had hatched. His next plan was just a few weeks later. This time he was going to make sure that people knew what he was doing. He was sick of not getting credit for things. Yeah. Early in the morning on July 4th, 1974, he called the KFWB News 98. KFWB News Nerd gas. <laughs> Death threat. So he called them up and still pretending to be a field commander of the SLA, he said that in honor of the SLA members who had died in a shootout in May, there will be three bomb blasts that will rock Los Angeles that day. Two in Marina Del Rey, one in Santa Monica, and one person will die in each blast. Now he got people's attention. Mm-hmm. Everyone was on high alert, but he still managed to follow through, but not exactly. Instead of a bomb, he used sponges soaked in gasoline and set fire to two apartment buildings in Marina Del Rey and one in Santa Monica, as promised. Luckily, nobody was injured, so he failed yet again. But with that phone call to the radio station and the response it got, he came to understand something that would shape the form of terrorism forever, even more so than an actual attack. Using mass media to spread your intentions and your threats can cause even more fear and damage to whoever you're trying to intimidate. Right. So it's not so much about what you're doing, it's what they think you could do. Yeah. So we all have this guy to thank for that. So to do this, the next day he dropped a cassette tape in a planter of the lobby of the LA Times building, which was a method he copied from the SLA. This was discovered by a security guard. They listened to it. It was a recording of him claiming to be a man named Isak Rasim, who was the military commander of Aliens of America. This was a group nobody had ever heard of because Kerbegovic had just made it up. He claimed they had 11 members, but what they didn't know that it was just him. But they don't know that. How would they know? He had gotten the idea to pretend to be part of a larger group from one of his bosses, again, who had done something like that to get something approved by some council, and it had worked. He pretended like, I represent this group, and it worked. So he tried to try it, but the authorities didn't, again, they didn't know this. All they knew was that they were receiving threats from somebody claiming responsibility for several crimes. He admitted in the tape that the postcard thing had been a hoax, and there was nothing harmful in the vials. Nice cover. (laughs) But he also said... It's not that I don't know what I'm doing. It's it's that I was was just trying to get your attention. uh, it was nerd gas, not nerd gas. I mispronounced. Nerds. You're the nerd gas, not me. I'm cool gas. But he also said that his group had placed time release nerve gas devices in New York City, Denver, Miami Beach, Ottawa, London, Paris, Moscow, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. And to prove he was serious, he claimed that his group had developed four different nerve ga- nerd gases that they had tested on a thousand animals and six humans. He claimed they had created a military weapon which not only liberates us from audacity and terror of United States government, but places the burden on our shoulder to liberate entire humankind. Wow, okay. So these were the demands of his on this tape. He demanded that the U.S. government abolish all immigration and naturalization laws. Again, this is another thing, like, you know, entirely wrong. He felt <laughs> that the Supreme Court repeatedly ruled that immigrants were not people and that the rights of people didn't apply to them and that it was treason that the country would deport people who were wrongfully arrested back to countries they barely or never knew. Yeah. He said that during the past spring, an agent of Aliens of America had gone four times to the Supreme Court carrying two concealed guns intending to jump the bench and deport U.S. Supreme Court justices to heaven. Oh my God, that's not how you... But all four times he had gone, he had chickened out at the last second. God knows, and we know he tried his best. He also wanted no more laws about anything sex-related. Oh, like yeah. Nothing. Trying to squeeze that one in. Yeah. And I another guess. thing, uh, if anyone goes in the bathroom and it looks like they're just on the toilet, <laughs> let them be on the toilet. I think people who are impotent should be mayor. Taxi dance halls should all be free, too. <laughs> and they should all dance with me. I mean, 
and them. And them. And uh, there should be more Diet Coke there. <laughs> he said, what our children and grandchildren have failed to realize is that whoever has the strength and ingenuity to build this nation, he also must have equal ability to destroy it once he realizes that it has become his worst enemy. And that was what he made clear that he intended to do. Beyond just threatening the U.S. government, by saying he had planted devices all over the world, he yeah. demanded an end to all nationalism, religionism, fascism, racism, and communism. Almost all of these statements he made were lies, but yeah. the authorities and the media who disseminated his words didn't know that, and yeah. the fear he put into people was real. Even though nothing serious had been done yet, these were serious threats being made and people were getting nervous. The city was scrambling to figure out who this was and how to stop them. They thought it was a group. A senator named Alan Cranston publicly said he was willing to talk with the AOA about their demands, and it seemed Kerbegovic was open to that, so he recorded another tape and left it near a radio station, but by chance, somebody who was just walking by saw it and took it home, not realizing oh, what it was. Wow. And then after a few days, he's this like... This mixtape sucks. Yeah. <laughs> then after a few days, he finally listened to it, and he told the FBI, but it was too late. The lack of response from the senator led Kerbegovic to believe that the senator wasn't serious about wanting to negotiate, and he felt he needed to do something for attention as a response to the senator's lack of response. So, at 8.10 a.m. on August 6, 1974, in the Pan Am terminal at LAX, Kerbegovic detonated an 11-pound bomb he had hidden in one of his lockers. This one worked. 36 people were injured, three people were killed. Oh, no. It was the biggest bombing to hit the city since the LA Times building, and this was the first airport bombing in U.S. history. Wow. Now, Kerbegovic was a murderer. Yep. <laughs> this you is did official. it. You yeah. did it, pal. Congratulations. <laughs> and he proved how dangerous he was, but still, nobody knew it was him. It's had... even harder to catch someone when you think it's a group, so you're trying to exactly. get a big net of people, and there's probably one loner who hasn't told anybody what he's doing. That's exactly... You will talk about the concept of a lone wolf after this. Yeah. No, I think I get it. No, I live it. <laughs> no, so nobody knew it was him still, and his plan of claiming credit for destruction and violence to scare people couldn't allow that. He could come out and say, it was I. So that night, he called the LA Herald Examiner, which was a newspaper he liked because it was so anti-communist, and he claimed responsibility for the explosion again as Rasim. He said, this is the AOA's work. And to prove it, he gave them the locker number that the bomb had been in, which was not public knowledge at the time. Wow. And once the debris had settled, they found that the bomb had the words on it, aliens of America. He said that a new recording would be coming soon to tell them more. Three days later, he called CBS Studios, said, go look in this trash can outside of this bank. Sure enough, another tape was found. Attached to the tape was the key from the locker he had put the bomb in at LAX. Wow. So they knew this is it. He said in this tape that the U.S. was no longer an alternative to communism and religionism and that the AOA had to remake the U.S. by fighting, but he said it wouldn't be a long battle. He warned, in three months, the AOA will have enough nerd, nerd gas to launch through cannons at Capitol Hill that would kill everybody inside and turn the entire Capitol Hill into a mortuary. Imagine what will happen if we are lucky and the wind blows from the Supreme Court to Capitol Hill to White House to Pentagon. He also threatened to release gas into skyscrapers through their air conditioning intake wow. vents that would kill everybody inside, which was something Osama bin Laden would do 20 years later. Way ahead yeah. of his time. He said they already had the building plans for 30 skyscrapers and that they'd visit the building, see where the air inlet is, take a walk, maybe watch a Dodger game and enjoy ourselves while everybody dies in that building. But in the meantime, his current plan was to detonate bombs in locations across the country to alphabetically spell out Aliens of America until our name has been written on the face of this nation with blood. A, first one, airport. This was when he was given the name the Alphabet Bomber. He admitted that some of his previous threats had been hoaxes, but he said a reasonable man will pause to think if someone points a gun at him whether the gun is loaded or empty. We were pointing an empty gun, but we were
were not pointing it at a reasonable man. This is why it was inescapably necessary to load our gun with one bullet to fire it and to see what would happen. We hope that we will never have to fire another bullet. But he also pointed out that he knows now they're going to get the death penalty. He committed murder. So now he has nothing to lose by getting more violent. So now this was a national threat and a special office was even set up in the basement of the White House devoted to capturing this person. (laughs) They didn't have to wait long for his next clue because a few days later he called the Herald Examiner again saying he'd tell them where the next bomb is if murder charges were brought against Commissioner McGowey. That was the guy who he firebombed and tried to blow up his car. And also retired police captain George Milemore, one of the guys who had brought charges against him for what he did in the dance hall because he claimed the two of them had killed Mexican immigrants on Skid Row. A day before this phone call, there had even been another tape found where he said the AOA were the ones responsible for those firebombs of the houses way back when. So now because of his need to let people know who was responsible for things, he gave them multiple names associated with his true identity. But Mm -hmm. since he had been acquitted of his lewd conduct charges, his name didn't come up on the suspect list and it would take a lot of time and a lot of cross-referencing before it would. But in the meantime, he was telling the examiner all of his plans. He also teased that when it got to O, that's going to be an oil refinery. A little after this, another tape was found where he did decide to tell them where the L-bomb was. Have you ever dropped an L-bomb? Lesbian, no. The L-bomb on Showtime. (laughs) He said L stands for locker and it also stands for life. He said it was in locker 625 at the Greyhound bus station in downtown. No, the Richard Ramirez one? Yep. The reason he told them was because he was confident that if anyone tried to defuse it, it would explode. So the bomb squad swarmed the Greyhound station. They opened up locker 625. Sure enough, there was a briefcase holding a 25 pound bomb. It was the most powerful explosive the bomb squad had ever faced at that point. They carefully dragged the bomb out of the locker on a rope, put it onto a truck that they planned to drive through downtown out of the city into the desert and detonate it. But they slowly started driving and the bomb started to smoke. So everybody ran away. Oh my God. The detonator went off, but it didn't explode the charge. Yet another failed plot. The day after this, though, he called the Herald Examiner again and said he had already planted the I-bomb, but he decided he wouldn't explode it. Nice cover again. But there were a thousand extra cops on the street that day looking everywhere in the city where a third bomb, and the city was in panic. People were freaking out. A bomb could go off anywhere at any time, and nobody had any clue where it was, because the alphabet system didn't make any sense. L for locker, that could be anywhere, and the first bomb was A, but it had also been in a locker. So yeah. who knows? <laughs> Luckily, the CIA was hot on his trail. They had those names associated with him, but experts had been analyzing his voice on oh, the right, tapes. Right. They determined not only that he was from Yugoslavia, they knew exactly where in Whoa. Yugoslavia he was from because of his accent. So with this, they looked at all the cases handled by those people he had mentioned in the tapes. Kerbegovic's name came out. He's from Yugoslavia prime suspect. Get him. They tailed him for a few days. They saw him drive to the beach and park and he was talking to himself in his car for a while. Then a few days later, he left his apartment dressed as inconspicuous as he could manage. He wore glasses, a red wig, and a green coat. <laughs> Poison Ivy? What are you <laughs> doing? I've, I've, he's the Riddler. <laughs> and he went into the bathroom of a Carl's Jr. in Hollywood. After he came out, a cop went in. He was just squatting in there. <laughs> what are you doing in here? Masturbating? <laughs> oh, that's allowed in a Carl's Jr. After he came out, cop went in. There's a cassette tape wrapped in green paper. Again, he's the Riddler. And the cop took the tape. Then a couple minutes later, Kabegovic went back in to check on the tape. The cop followed him in and arrested him. Wow. This was August 20th, 1974. He became mute again after his arrest. (laughs) When they raided 
raided his apartment, they found he had everything he needed except for one ingredient to make sarin nerd gas, which was the stuff Saddam Hussein was using in the 80s and the stuff Syria is using right now. It's also, you know that Japanese doomsday cult? It's Oumu Shinrikyo. Um, Shinrikyo? Yeah, yeah, that's what they use. Really? This is deadly stuff, and he could have killed thousands of people in Los yeah. Angeles with it, so he was missing one ingredient to make that. The apartment was also filled with live pipe bombs, the alien manifesto, and a lot of green towels. Nah, and this red wig. <laughs> a closet full of red wigs. <laughs> they also found a map of London's Heathrow Airport, Ugh. and it turned out he had gone multiple times in the weeks leading up to his arrest to a travel agency to find out about trips to Europe. It also turned out he had been using his connections and positions at work to get all of the materials that he had bought. The Greyhound bus bomb used a type of tank that he had gotten while he was working at Dynatech. Some of the chemicals were bought from Urban Grey Company in Culver City that he got by pretending to be a representative for Hughes wow. Aircraft. They eventually got suspicious, so they stopped selling it to him. Even more suspicious, right after that, their supply house blew up. But where did he keep all these chemicals? Yeah. Nobody could find them for two years oh until he told the police where he hid them. He had built a false wall in his bathroom that created a secret room that you could access through a door behind his medical cabinet. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. It took five and a half years, and I can't even get my neighbors evicted, but this guy can <laughs> build a fake bomb cabinet. It took five and a half years before he went to trial because the entire time they were evaluating his mental competency. He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic which had attributed to his intelligence because when he set his mind to something he wasn't distracted by anything yeah. he could just learn it during this period he punched his public defender wow. he tried to escape from the criminal courts building and he claimed that he was the messiah to prove he was incompetent to stand trial but does he know where the ark is <laughs> i got one question for you <laughs> where is the ark <laughs> <They're> slapping him <laughs> yeah. in the chair where is it but he was still deemed fit for trial where he yet again decided to represent himself awesome. and what ensued was eight months of him just acting crazy and annoying. He would yell at reporters. He told the judge he wanted to spit on her. He would sarcastically applaud the prosecutor. He was making faces at the TV cameras. When a pastor who had gotten his leg blown off in the LAX bombing came in as a witness, he asked him, so where was your God when this bomb went off? Cool. Not I hope he's dead now. Eh, he's not. Not surprisingly, and to everyone's satisfaction, he was found guilty of 25 counts of murder, arson, attempted murder, possession of explosive material, and exploding a bomb. The judge said he was the most dangerous person in custody that I know of. He got sentenced to life in prison, to which he asked the judge, can I have a thousand years so I can have something to look forward to? Nah, nah. Riddler. <laughs> Riddle me this! <laughs> Put a uh, question mark over his mouth. <laughs> when he was walked out of the courtroom, he famously held up a sign that said, I shall return. In prison, he has set several fires. He's tried to kill other inmates and he has been caught with contraband explosives and weapons. Wow. He has threatened to kill both the prosecutor and the judge that put him there and also every single president since 1974. He Jimmy Carter, him too. Jimmy Carter, I don't like what you do for people. He eventually admitted that AOA was a fake organization, but he was a decommissioned intelligence operative for the Yugoslavian government sent to America with the objective to undermine and erode the foundation of Western civilization, which is the Holy Bible. He was also <laughs> sending letters under his prosecutor's name to Campbell's Soup Company saying that their alphabet soup gave him food poisoning. <laughs> the alphabet bomber, always on brand. In 1987, he went up for parole claiming the people of California can only gain from his release. He was denied. Nowadays, he spends his time in jail reading spy novels, throwing feces at guards, and claiming they are injecting him with AIDS. Kerbegovic, as bumbling and yet still scary as he was, is considered the first lone wolf extremist. This was pre-Unabomber, but he's just another idiot who wants glory and attention for spreading fear. He wanted credit after 9-11 because right after it happened, he sent a thing to the Supreme Court saying, I've been in Al-Qaeda since 1963, since before it was Kabul. Uh, yeah. 
Get it? I get it. But as forgettable and despicable as this guy is, he still set the stage for pretty much all the terrorists we've had to face since him. So you're welcome, the rest of the world. Los Angeles created this monster. (laughs) I don't know how someone's spreading fear in the 70s and I didn't know about it. It is surprising to not really know that this guy was running around in 1973, 74. It was our own Summer of Sam before Summer of Sam. I I remember you talking about the bombing at LAX, but I, I didn't know that it was a spree. So I'm glad to know that now. Yeah, scary guy. Yeah, scary guy who's still alive in prison. I think he's in San Quentin or something, okay. maybe. But yeah, he's probably threatening Donald Trump right now. <laughs> scary stuff. That's our junk drawer. But junk drawer closed. <laughs> Let's get to our listener question for this month. Not such scary stuff. This one is from Bronwyn underscore Lewis on Instagram. The question this month is: I know you talked in one of your live episodes about how you guys met, but I'm curious about how, why, when. You decided to start the podcast. You see, I was sending you. threats <laughs> to the president at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bush. Bush. Bull pushes. I didn't. Well, let's start with when. Okay. This we, was six, almost six. It's coming up on six years coming ago. Coming up on six years. We probably had the idea in 2012. Yeah, it must have been. I, so I was Knowing us. Yeah, Chico, we came up with it. And you were down here and you got into podcasts before I did. Probably would never done funny and Connie Bang Bang. And the Bowery Boys. And the Bowery Boys. Yeah. Because the Bowery Boys is a a podcast that does New York history kind of in the same way we do. Except uh, they don't juggle and red balls on their <laughs> they nose. Don't have, they don't have sound effects like <laughs> we do. You had been talking about doing a zine, an mm-hmm. LA zine of just like comics and I was like writing like travel joke, stuff travel or like joke lists and oh, things that's right, like that yeah. for no, no yeah I was writing that was a different thing but yeah. yeah I was writing joke lists for you to put in your zine uh-huh. and I had come up with the name LA Meekly and I thought that was so funny it and did. most as in most decisions of my life I base it around a funny title <laughs> I thought there's no Bowery Boys podcast for Los Angeles there's right. no one who's, who's doing a podcast on Los Angeles yeah. history and I thought you know someday when me and Greg are famous comedians we're <laughs> going to start a podcast and people will listen to it and then they'll after, be obligated to. and then they'll have to because that's the contract yeah i saw what the way the world was going all <laughs> comedians would have a podcast after i guess a year of that i was like well we're not going to be famous comedians why don't we just do this mm-hmm. let's just start something and we did yeah i saw it initially because i wasn't that interested in los angeles history at the time i was not that enamored with los angeles even yeah. though i grew up here it took doing all this research and like the more i do it the more i appreciate the city and yeah i know what you exactly what you mean though yeah it's really given me an appreciation for the city that i didn't have but m- when we first started i saw it more of a of a way to just get ourselves out because mm-hmm. we were desperate to do something, something yeah and we, we express we came ourselves our in some way attack which yeah. was stand-up stand comedy up, a podcast, podcast and writing stuff scripts. yeah and um, we followed through with all of them in such a weak <laughs> so, half-hearted way <laughs> as scaredy cat as you can still like yeah. you're doing it but you're still terrified as you're doing it yeah, we're terrified later. of being successful yeah i was getting into alley history because i had started when i was going up to chico yeah it reading, took you moving away from la exactly reading raymond chandler and then like oh this is sort of based on real stuff and then i would be looking into that yeah i got really into obviously crime it took you leaving our city and mm-hmm. me forcing myself to learn about yeah. the city for us to appreciate this place which yeah. I, I guess that makes sense why not more people are sort yeah. of interested in this because it does take you know you can walk around new york city with the bowery board that's why they're so much more popular you can walk around new york city and see this 300 year old church and you'd be like wow what's that story yeah. but here you really have to it's like a magic eye puzzle Especially you have to cross your eyes and walk down the street try that <laughs> 
through traffic. LA has such a habit of like, wow, this really old thing. We're going to knock it down and build yeah. apartment complexes. And, and how much have, has been lost just since we started the podcast? Exactly. You, t- you reminded me just the other day that Norm, the original Norms, is gone yeah. since we've done the episode mm-hmm. on the original Norms. Yeah. Echo Park has been changing over the last 10 years, but even since we started the podcast, so much more has yeah. just been kind of kicked to the curb. And like, we're going to knock down Mrs. Donuts, which has been a local favorite. We're going to put a hipster donut place here with $6 yeah. donuts. Madam Donuts. Exactly. Because of the Bowery Boys, you saw a channel of like, well, we could use this podcast thing to start yeah. doing it because it, it hadn't been that popular. Like I wasn't listening to many podcasts and it was still like maybe two years before Serial came out and people it were like, oh, we should start doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There were still plenty of podcasts. Oh, we for, are not sure, sure. For by sure, any we're not, account. We're not even early in the history no, of podcasts. not at all. Maybe in the sense of that everyone on our level now has a podcast. But yeah. the third part of this question is how we did this. We just got a microphone. We bought that. We bought it. We, we went, we split the cost of a USB snow globe microphone. Yeah. We sat at <laughs> we, CSUN. Yeah. Uh, so much has changed. It's, people were walking in on us in the middle of recordings. Mm-hmm. Boy, are those days over. <laughs> yeah, we were huddled around this one microphone and yeah. we didn't want to pay for a hosting service. Yeah. There was a way to publish these online through this crazy, like third party, yeah. probably illegal thing called FeedBurner or something. And yeah. I had to like type in code and like it wouldn't work. It was like some days like, well, we can't release this episode for three more days because this isn't working. Yeah. Eventually it just stopped working completely and mm-hmm. then we had to pay money to do this. To do it and have it all the problems out the window. Yeah. No problem from then on. <laughs> but yeah, it was, you know, we just bought the equipment. We're using the same free program, Audacity, on mm-hmm. the computer that we've always used. I've, I've been editing it with a better program on my yeah. computer. I stare at my computer daily in my laptop waiting for it. We're still, we've been using the, the same, same computer. Because yeah. <laughs> the day that it tanks, That's we, the, we the might podcast not, over. <laughs> you might not have an episode that month. And let me tell you that my laptop We've had some close calls. Pretty loud lately. I haven't even thought about the fact that our whole future is depending on your 10-year-old laptop Ten-year-old that laptop you can't afford to fix. That I drag with me everywhere. It sits in my car, yep. ready to be stolen. Oh, I'm nervous. Oh no, our boss will get mad at us. Greg, don't you remember we're sponsored, <laughs> right? We're the podcast that's still sponsored. That's us. But yeah, that, that's a, that's a, that's our story. That is, and, that's and that's our story. Let, let me slam this thing that my knee has been hitting this whole cool. time. Case closed. Good. So if you have a listener question for us, you can email us la.meekly at gmail.com or message us on Any Instagram social media. at la underscore meekly, mm-hmm. Twitter at la meekly. Facebook. Also follow us on those things. Yeah. Leave us a review on iTunes Please. or the podcast app as it's now called on yeah. your phones. Just open it up. Leave us some stars, some words if you want. It's nice. It helps people find us. It gives us more legitimacy. Someday the LA Times will respond to my messages. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can listen to us on YouTube yep. also. Uh, That's probably the easiest way. We're also on Spotify, I believe. Yeah. And we are on iHeartRadio. I checked. We're we on iHeartRadio. I don't oh. know how, but we're on iHeartRadio. Okay. Well, I thought that was going to be the thing that saved us. Yeah. I guess there's nothing, nothing for no, us. No, it saved us, but this is what salvation looks like. Yeah, it's weird that being saved and not being saved looks pretty close. <laughs> the rapture has happened. This is heaven. Don't forget to uh, oh, yeah. send us a listener question that our November episode yeah. is going to be based on. And also, if you want to support us financially, because we don't... We, oh, yeah. Hey, we don't have a sponsor. <laughs> the charade's over. We don't have a sponsor anymore. So it's up to you to support us financially to keep this going. On Patreon for $5 a month, we will send you handwritten, mm-hmm. artisanal, mm-hmm. handcrafted, made in bulk. 
Written by a computer. <laughs> no postage. Return to sender. Postcards. We will send them to you for as little as $5 a month. Or if you want to give less than that just to support us, yeah. you won't get a postcard, but we appreciate it very yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our, that's been our junk drawer episode. Many more to follow. Mandy more to follow. Mandy more to follow. There's all sorts of little topics we have like this that we don't know what to do with. Yeah. I want to get back to the one I originally wanted to do, but that the group never messaged me back. So I've denounced them. The Los Angeles Science Fiction <laughs> the Society. The KKK. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Proud Boys. I can't live in Atwater now. <laughs> yeah. So we hope you have a good uh, beginning of fall, end of summer. I hope it doesn't turn into lava weather. I hope the sky isn't on fire all the time. <laughs> well, I hope there's still oxygen after the Amazon has burnt to the ground. I don't, you know, I don't even care. Like why even have oxygen? Like what? Everything else is going great. This take them. Take my oxygen, please. <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> take this, God. <laughs> sir, all of our oxygen. So that's been yet another episode of Ellie Meekly. Conceited as a head of lettuce since 2013. I, I'm still angry about that store. <laughs> you you are never gonna get a job there, so you don't have to worry about it. It's but not. They're it, not even union. <laughs> <laughs> what are they gonna? What are they gonna? Uh, what are they gonna? 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 What are they gon